0: Six years ago in King's Landing, Dunk had seen him with his own two eyes, as he rode a pale horse up the Street of Steel with fifty raven's teeth behind him. That was before King Ares had ascended to the Iron Throne and made him the Hand, but even so he cut a striking figure. Garbed in smoke and scarlet, with Dark Sister on his hip, his pallid skin and bone white hair made him look a living corpse. Across his cheek and chin spread a wine-stained birthmark that was supposed to resemble a Red Raven, though Dunk only saw an odd-shaped blotch of discoloured skin. He stared so hard that Bloodraven felt it. The king's sorcerer had turned to study him as he went by. He had one eye, and that one red. The other was an empty socket. The gift Bittersteel had given him upon the red grass field, Yet it seemed to dunk that both eyes had looked right through his skin, down to his very soul. Despite the heat, the memory made him shiver.
1: Born a royal bastard, Brynden Rivers would go on to be, at first, a trusted advisor and spymaster, then hand to the king for three kings in a row, all while being a warrior of note worthy of the Valyrian blade Dark Sister and a confirmed user of the Arcane. And this is all before he took the Black, became Lord Commander, and then vanished beyond the Wall, only to turn up alive again in a dance with dragons as none other than the Three-Eyed Crow. Meaning he's been in the story since the very beginning. Very early in Book 1. And that, I know, is something not all of you are sold on, meaning Blood Raven is the Three-Eyed Crow. You needn't accept it at this point, so early in the process. It's going to be a nice long journey, and we'll get to that. The Three-Eyed Crow evidence and discussion comes later. Quite a lot later, really, because this dude with his extremely long and interesting and awesome life is too much for a single episode. Even a History of Westeros-sized episode. And you are not surprised at all, are you? We generally make long episodes about people with much shorter lifespans, and this guy is still alive after more than one and a quarter centuries, so yeah. But wait. Perhaps you are going to be surprised, after all, because this is no mere two-episode split. This will be three episodes, yeah. Because he went to the Wall, thanks to an action he took against the Blackfires, and everything he does once at the Wall, and then on from there, is generally unrelated to the Blackfires. So the first two of the three episodes will be part of the Blackfire series, making our seven episodes eight. (laughs) Perhaps not unlike what George is going to have to do with his main series of A Song, Ice and Fire. But anyway, not to mention we're going to cover the Ninepenny Kings someday, because they're all appropriately under this Blackfire umbrella. But the final part of the Blood Raven series, part three, is going to cover the rest of his life from the point at which he took the Black, and we're not going to label it as part of the Blackfire Rebellion series. But you'll know how it fits together, and you'll know where it is. Now, all of this is because Blood Raven is a character who bears a unique distinction as only a... Man? Of 125 years of age could? Yeah, I I really wanted to say like... Tree man there or something. (laughs) He's kind of not exactly a man anymore. But anyway, he looms large in the history and annals of Westeros while playing a role in the current story as well. And like I say, a lot of things make him unique. That actually isn't one of them. There's a few others who loom as large... Well, or at least they loom small and interestingly. In both past and present, and perhaps future, such as Walder Frey, whose first chronological appearance comes in the Mystery Knight, just like Blood Ravens. And also old Nan, Maester Eamon, and in her own category, Melisandra, who is the only one of these characters I just named who might actually be older than Blood Raven. Bloodraven may have interacted with all of these characters, too, these fellow long-lifers, quite directly in some cases. He and Eamon, of course, were on the wall together and went there at the same time, so that's very clear. Old Nan at the time was young Nan, but she had been at Winterfell for over a decade when Brynden took the Black, so she'd have been hearing about him her whole life even before that because he was really famous. And it's possible he went to Winterfell while he was Lord Commander or even while he was Hand of the King, and she would have been there for part of the time he held that title, too. Walder Frey was born the year before Bloodraven became Hand, and he was there only for a few years. And let's not forget, Blood Raven is a Blackwood, with the twins not far away. One of Walder's many wives was a Blackwood himself, or herself, rather. Now, as for Melisandre, well, she's less certain. There's a theory that Blood Raven is her father, but we're not going to get into that in this episode. We're going to talk about Shiera Seastar doing an episode on her one day, and well, it makes more sense to talk about this all from the mother's perspective, especially because there's so much to coven with, with Bloodraven. Given all the things he does and people he interacts with over such a huge span that covers some of the best-known, most detailed parts of A Song of Ice and Fire history, well, there's already enough to talk about here, so we don't need to add any additional challenges. He's an amazing character, and there's so much to say already. Hello, and a big welcome back to History of Westeros podcast. The last installment of the Blackfire Rebellion series came, oh, only 13, not days, not weeks. Yeah, 13 months-ish ago, and we're sorry it took so long. We're channeling the wrong aspects of George R. R. Martin's style here, but we're also going to channel... Hopefully, most of the best as well, because this episode should be a lot of fun. This is a big character who embodies a lot of the traits of so many of our other favorite characters all at once, and I think you're going to enjoy it. History of Westeros is brought to you by our patrons. Jeff Gnarly, the Longsnapper, History of Westeros' First Sword, Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell, Rider of Masala White Dragon with Green Scales, Horns, Wings, and Talons. Talenis the Talon, King of Gogassus, Rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. Jinx of House Lier, Green Queen of the Rainwood, Rumored Daughter of a Woods Witch, Rider of Erogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. We are part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of independent podcasters joining together to make true the old cliche, Strength in Numbers. Each month, we feature something from the Agora Network. This month, it's the Agora Podcast Facebook group. It's a moderated, fun, fair, and friendly discussion on a very wide variety of current and historical topics. While you're at it, join the History of Westeros Facebook group. If you've tried to join and haven't gotten in, remember you have to answer a few questions to prove that you're not a troll or a bot. That's the only thing. The questions are really easy. Something to do with Sean's beard, if I remember correctly last but certainly not least studio headphones. I'm wearing my Studio region headphones right now as I'm recording this part. They're very awesome. I've been talking about them for months and the fact is I'm still using them, so that tells you a lot. If you want to get your own pair, go to historyofwesteros.com, click on the Studio link or just go straight to studiosweden.com and enter the code Westeros to get 15% off any purchase. Because the span of his life is so great and so wide, and he went to so many places and did so many things, it's kind of difficult to narrow down all these different unique aspects of his life. Even though, like I said, it's a pretty well-detailed portion of Westerosi history. But so many important things happened during Bloodraven's life, his long life, and with many of those interesting things, we can't exactly narrow them down on the timeline. And as we've talked about at length in the history of this show, the order that things happen means a lot, and we don't always know what they are, so there's a lot of moving parts here. For example, we have no idea when he first learned to use magic. And which magic? That's It's a double conundrum because he uses multiple kinds. He used sorcery that seems to have originated in the east, and certainly the magic of the old gods. But we don't know when either of those began and which came first. As longtime listeners know, we don't like to settle on particular unknowns or theories. In general, we like to present ranges of possibilities. But the challenge with Bloodraven is that there are just so darn many possibilities spread out over such a huge period of time. So we have to use our imaginations quite a lot. And we're going to have to settle on some theories because we can't possibly present them all. Anyway, it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to have to use your imagination like we did. And that's going to be a blast. This truly does start at the beginning. Very early in the series, we're introduced to direwolves. And they sure were in the right place at the right time, weren't they? Hmm. And soon after that, we learn about skin changing, and from then on, you know, we're gradually learning more and more about how that works, even though there's a lot of mystery left. We see a glimpse of the concept of second life when John kills Orel. Orel lives on in his eagle and ends up dealing serious injuries to both Ghost and John, and he hates the man who killed him. It all makes sense. The story checks out. In A Dance with Dragons, we get even more insight through Varamyr. And this is probably setting it all up for Jon. But it's not just Jon. You know, this, these concepts are important outside of the character of Jon Snow. And speaking of setting all that up, Brynden Rivers is probably the one who sent the direwolves Wolves to the Starks in the first place. Something we'll talk about later. And speaking of Second Lives... Brendan is currently on his, though not in the living on an animal kind of thing. He lives on in a tree, a tree connected to other trees. And those trees, in turn, are connected to the lives of many who came for. Those who bore kinship to humanity, nature, and the unexplained mystical forces behind you know, all of that. Our time exploring Bloodraven will include comparisons to a lot of very well-known main characters. And laying this list out here at the beginning is going to give you a sense of just how large a character he is. Because it's a very diverse group, and some of the characters he compares with don't compare to each other. Because he's got such a wide, diverse array of skills and, you know, long life and all that. One of the most obvious ones, I think, is Jon Snow. We've already mentioned him. Both are seen as bastards. Both Lord Commanders of the Night's Watch. Both have Valyrian steel blades. Both were skin changers. Both have the Song of Ice and Fire in their blood, given their heritages. That's a big one. Jon's is, maybe you could say, a bit more epic with Stark and Targaryen, but Blackwood and Targaryen is pretty darn epic, too, and really darn cool. Bran, of course, is another one. That one hardly needs saying, but I will say it, and we'll get back to him in part three. Melsandra, of course, as well, bringing her up again, thanks to use of Glamour's and Long Life, of course, and perhaps other sorceries, they may have both learned some of the same things. But despite all this magic, we can't not compare him to anti-magic Varys, since they were both such big players as Master of Whisperers, and because they both claim to be for the realm, and often prove it, but not always. Tyrion, too. Another major parallel. Maybe as strong as Jon. Almost as strong as Jon. Due to his style of rule, and more importantly, perhaps, the difference in how they looked to, compared to the normal person. Meaning, Tyrion was judged quite a lot for his appearance, and so is Bloodraven. So this isn't very fair, but it happened. A lot. Tywin, also. Good comparison to Bloodraven. Mostly due to style of rule and ruthlessness and how long and effective they were as Hand of the King. But there's a lot of differences between them, too. Because Bloodraven is very much his own unique character. Those, Those comparisons are great, but they're certainly nowhere near the full picture. If you were to, say, go from Hand of the King to the Wall, that would surely be seen as a demotion by most. But it's arguably a more important task for humanity, especially now with others returning. Hand of the King is a shortened version of the full title, which says Protector of the Realm. The irony here being that he's arguably done more to protect the realm, lost beyond the wall, than he ever did while holding the title Hand of the King. And that's not because he was a bad Hand of the King, not at all. He deserves some criticism, for sure. He wasn't perfect. There's plenty of things I would criticize him very heavily on, but he was good overall. He did a solid job, and he did it for a really long time. 25 years, about. And... During that, he had to rise above the stigma of bastardy, slaying, looking scary, and other things to change a lot of minds. He had to work twice as hard or three times as hard to get the same acclaim, or even less acclaim than people who weren't bastards, who looked normal. But during the time as Hand of the King, he never faced a threat like the others. He didn't have to perform quite at that same level, but he's in the right place at the right time now. Interestingly, an oft-mentioned critique of his time as Hand is that he focused too much on the Blackfires. And some parts of Westeros suffered because of this. You now, he may have had his reasons. They might actually be good reasons. And we'll consider that, too. But it definitely cost him his job as Hand. If he's a man who often focuses too much on a singular threat, well, that's a good thing now. Because what threat is bigger than the others? That's a good thing to focus on. As Stannis and Melisandre say, that's the only enemy that matters. Now, no human enemy can ever seem so terrible when you have gazed into the dark heart of winter itself and felt, no, known that it's coming for you and everyone. Literally everyone. But just as Bran couldn't just jump straight into wielding vast ancient powers, Brynden needed to prepare as well. Still, they began at Different ages, very different ages relative to each other. Brand learned early in life, very early in life, what he was up against. And his training also began very young. Even as his awakening came much earlier, Brendan's most likely began late, meaning his training. Brand went beyond the Wall when he was around 8 or 9, Brendan was about 77 when he <laughs> got lost beyond the Wall. So, this Green Seer age gap is pretty interesting, isn't it? Perhaps it's a simple matter of urgency. Well, it might be better if he learned his powers later, but Bran is needed now. Brendan may not have known what he was preparing for during his time at court, but it prepared him nonetheless. Day in and day out, it was his job to consider the welfare of Westeros, with his chief concern being an enemy from outside the realm. And in his time at court, he dealt with quite a lot of prophecy, too. It wasn't just all Blackfires, despite his seeming obsession with them. However, those two ideas might be connected. Again, ranges of ideas and possibilities here, everybody. But that's where we're headed on this 125-year journey. That's how we're laying it all out. So to understand how he's facing the existential threat of the Others here, in his own version of a second life in the North, we must first look at how he conducted himself in his first life in the South. Brendan Rivers. As we've said countless times now, you may even be sick of hearing it, but it's such an important concept, it bears repeating. The relationships formed between children of noble and or royal blood at these young ages have really significant consequences down the line. We don't call them formative relationships for nothing. Even now, at his extreme age, and having gained so much wisdom in perspective, Brynden's family is still with him.
0: Bran III, A Dance with the Dragons I have my own ghosts, Bran, a brother that I loved, a brother that I hated, a woman I desired. Through the trees, I see them still, but no word of mine has ever reached them. The past remains the past. We can learn from it, but we cannot change it.
1: When he was born, most of the people who would play huge roles in his life were already around. With a few to come shortly after, meaning he was on the younger end of his generation. Another few have uncertain birth dates, so it's not quite clear, but we usually have it narrowed down to a few years. These aren't huge ranges here. And there's a very clear thread that all the people share. All these young royals and nobles that grew up around each other or near each other. Most of the people who loomed large in Bloodraven's pre-Wall life are his own relatives, particularly the descendants of his father, Aegon IV the Unworthy, his sons and daughters, that's Aegon's sons and daughters, true-born or legitimized, and in turn, their descendants. So in that quote, he claims to love one brother, hate another, and desire a particular woman. Two of these are seemingly easy to guess, and while the other can be narrowed down to probably just two candidates, let's go through them. The brother he hated is, of course, Bittersteel. Easy. And given the circumstances in prior history of their maternal families, which is Bracken and Blackwood, it's almost literally like they were born to be enemies. His father's preceding and next-in-line mistresses were both Brackens, and his mother was a Blackwood. That's not ideal. <laughs> the woman he desired is his half-sister, Shiera Seastar. That's also pretty straightforward. Agor famously desired her as well, and they fought over her. Brynden eventually offered her marriage many times, but she never accepted. This is something we're also going to deal with in a future episode about Shiera Seastar, The relationship between those two, that is. Here it sounds as if he might be thankful for it not working out, in a sense. It's like in his old age, in his wisdom, he's come to realize that what he felt for her was not love, but lust. There's also a chance it's a bit of sour grapes. Maybe he really did love her. It's like, ah. The brother he loved is either his elder half-brother, Daron II, who he stayed fiercely loyal to, or Damon Blackfire himself, whom he and his men slew, along with Damon's twin sons at the Red Grass Field. It was said that everyone loved Damon. He just had that kind of charisma. And Brendan and he would have interacted when Brendan was really young, when and Damon was about five years older, so it's really easy to see him looking up to him. Because everyone did. He just had that kind of charisma. And Daron II did not. So you can see why it might have been Damon, even though Daron was the one he stayed loyal to. Daron II also already had a child of his own around this time, and that was Baylor, Baylor Breakspear. And that he was close in age to Damon. So maybe he had some loyalty to Baylor, which in turn connected him to Daron. But either way, it seems like if Bloodraven was referring to Damon in this quote about the brother he loved, that would be more tragic. And that's kind of why I prefer it, because I don't know, George seems to kind of lean towards tragedy, right? It's just it's more compelling. It's not as sad if Daron is the brother he loved. Darren had a nice long life, even though his circumstances of death were a bit tragic. I don't know. I feel like it's Damon, but your interpretation is perfectly valid as well. If you disagree with me, but anyway, that quote we have from Bloodraven is the only quote we have where he speaks about his family. But there's plenty to say about them anyway. We know a lot. Another bastard creation. Brendan Rivers was born in 175 AC, third child of Melissa Blackwood, and who knows what number he was for King Aegon. <laughs> but he was the third and final male great bastard. He came four to five years after the first great bastard, Damon Waters, who would later be Damon Blackfire, and three years after Agor Rivers, a.k.a. Bittersteel. Now, here's a piece by Marion B. Polyhebdo on Tumblr. You can see a picture of all the great bastards here. Now, if you are listening on podcast, you could always check us out on ACAST. Change your podcast player to that. It's free, and you get to see these images as part of your podcast player. It's pretty cool. You can scroll through them, so you don't have to look at them while you're... If you're driving, you can look at them later. This goes for all the images we go through in this episode. But a key detail to remember is that the eldest great bastard, Damon was not actually openly known as the son of King Aegon the Unworthy. So at the time, he wasn't the n- eldest known great bastard, even though he technically was. People just didn't know it. So until 182... When Brendan was seven, the eldest known Great Bastard was Agor. This context is really vital, as is so many of the other the fun parts of this era, because if you get things out of order, it all gets confusing. That's what we're here for. A lot was going on, and we're gonna keep track of it. Brynden looked special at birth, of course, and royal bastards would normally be a big deal. But his father was not a normal king, and his mother was also not a normal mistress. And I hardly need to point out how unnormal Brendan himself was, besides the special look. But the special look itself was the most outstanding thing apparent to people at first. White hair, pale skin, red eyes. And that birthmark, yeah, that's just... hmm. I could see his birth conflated with the dragon-like children born from some of Magor's black brides and or Rhaenyra's daughter, Visenya. Or Daenerys herself and Rego, of course you're gonna think of that. But back then... Danny wasn't around. You know, this is 175 AC, and Rhaenyra and Megor's Black Brides had already happened. So, we readers can compare to all three, but at the time it would have only compared to those first two. But remember that Rhaego was called an abomination, and I wonder if Brendan Well, he didn't look as wild as that, but that's still how gossip works. Think about how Tyrion looked, and what people said about him when he was born. So it seems not unlikely that there were rumors and gossip of exaggerations about him as well. Like I said, royal children are almost always a big deal, and many see them as such because they're like a portent of what's to come. Here's Oberyn saying exactly that.
0: Storm of Swords, Tyrion V. You were small, but far-famed. We were an old town at your birth. And all this city talked of was the monster that had been born to the king's hand, and what such an omen might foretell for the realm. Famine, plague, and war, no doubt. Tyrion gave a sour smile.
1: Well, none of those things happened when Bloodraven was born, but they did happen later, when he was much higher on the power ladder, much older, and he was still blamed for it <laughs> by quite a few, so eh. In any case, you could say Baby Brynden stood out in ways that Westerosi society, putting it mildly, just does not appreciate. Since he turned out shorter and thinner and not nearly as strong as his great bastard nor similarly aged Targaryen counterparts, he was probably smaller at an early age as well. Even before he lost his eye, he looked sinister. Some would probably say so from the moment he was born. And later, I doubt he was called handsome, much or at all, though he was clearly athletic. Good fighter. But we don't know much of anything about his two sisters. He had... Two elder sisters, Mia and Gwyneth. Whether they married later, how well they got along with their brother or father and mother. Whether they lived at court or went back to Raventree Hall with their mother. Whether they came back to court later. We don't know anything about them other than their names. And that Brendan was the youngest. Maybe they were really important in his life, but right now that info is unavailable to us, so... Maybe one day we'll learn more. Someday, perhaps. Of course, this also means we don't know what his sisters looked like. But it's pretty unlikely either of them had his features. Maybe they looked... Targaryen ish. Maybe they looked a little like Bittersteel with the Orbalor Breakspear or Prince Valar, where they had cross features, dark hair, maybe blue or purple eyes on top of that. Valar had like the streak of silver. Who knows? Point is that not only was Brendan's look far from the ideal, but he was unique. No one else looked like him. Well, almost no one. <laughs> we'll see. But his father had the classic Targaryen look, one he doesn't share with his father. And his mother, well, that's less clear, too, because we don't have a lot of detailed descriptions of Blackwood looks. There's art of her in the world of Ice and Fire, and since George was pretty critical of the art choices that went in, it's probably right on. It's Magali Villeneuve who did the art, and she's dark brown hair with red tone. But here's another one, also by Marion B, Polly again, who went with red, which is the valid interpretation as well. She's described as slender, just like Brendan who we also know that a double hill lying between Bracken and Blackwood lands is nicknamed either Barba's Teats or Missy's Teach, depending on if you ask a Bracken or a Blackwood. Other than that, we don't know much about what she looked like, but let's move on from her appearance and consider... Missy's Feats. Born between 156 and 160, so between 12 or 16 when chosen by the king, unlike most of his mistresses, she was generous and modest and was said to be kind... I'm not so sure we can say Brendan has any of those traits himself, but he is a, con- a confident guy and he doesn't seem at all bothered by his own looks. So, that maybe he learned some things from his mother in that regard. As we know later, he pursues a woman considered to be absurdly beautiful himself, which isn't the kind of thing you'd expect from someone who's kind of shy or lacking self-esteem, especially with regards to their own appearance. Uh, generous, modest, and kind are not exactly the traits you commonly see at court. So, Melissa may have been a bit of a fish out of water, Maybe her comfort level wasn't great, but being out of place like that and getting along so well, maybe that rubbed off on Brendan. But the thing that stood out the most about her was that she seemed to transcend royal court drama. It was pretty hard to do. Even going, going so far as to befriend the queen and the prince. That's a pretty wow factoid right there. You don't see a lot of wives befriending their husbands' lovers, right? (laughs) But Missy went even farther by befriending Garon as well. Likewise, you don't see a lot of sons being nice to the woman replacing their mother. So it's really quite amazing that she befriended the queen. But Queen Nerys didn't love her husband, and she was humble and pious. Aerys was embarrassed by him, not jealous of the time he spent with other women. She probably thought it was a relief. She probably was glad that he was spending time away from her. Still, it's kind of shameful. But it's not the standard other woman situation, is my point. There's even room for the two to sympathize with each other. Like, oh, isn't he so terrible? (laughs) They could bond over how awful Aegon was. She also knew more than anyone else in that her husband didn't take no for an answer. So she understood that Melissa probably couldn't say no. And so she couldn't hold that against her, knowing that. So this is another way they could have found some common ground. So you give some credit to Nerys for... You know, being above all that. But still, Melissa is the really outstanding one here. After all, none of the other mistresses seem to have been friends with the Queen. None of them pulled that off. And there were a lot of them, as we know. Now, maybe part of that is because Melissa didn't seem to have any apparent thirst for power. A lot of the other mistresses have had ambition, and Melissa does not seem to have had that. Her ambition seemed to just be friends with people, be nice. So she bridged a gap that is not normally bridged for many reasons. She didn't have regular power. She had the power of likability. And Prince Daron saw that for what it was, too. He put all the blame on his father, which is not a tough sell. Daron's father w- did a lot of awful things to him, like trying to claim that he was a bastard and deny him his claim to the throne, like pretty darn bad. Aegon's family basically all hated him, for the most part. Still, though, none of the other mistresses made friends like Melissa, so this really stands out. But not even a Melissa and her incredible powers of relationship building were enough to end. You know infinite years of Bracken Blackwood hatred, but we don't fault her for that like who she can't put that all in one person Not even Jeharis the conciliator could do that. So if a king named the conciliator can't do it Well, what do you expect Melissa to do? She wasn't just popular at court either There's a statue of her in the godswood at Raven Tree Hall That seems like a pretty big deal an indication of how revered she was and still is after all this story is told to us by a young Hoster Blackwood in A Dance with Dragons much later Egg will marry Betha Blackwood, and I have long wondered if the good relations established by Melissa carried over, you know, to help establish more relations down the line. Perhaps Melissa was still alive when Egg and Betha met. Probably not because she would have been in her mid-sixties or so, but it's possible. As we know, Westerosi are big on ascribing the personality traits of the parents to the children. People are quick to trust the son if the father is honorable. That sort of thing. it's like the default. Certainly people can prove otherwise, but at the start, that's what they go with. And this may have happened here as well. Because if Melissa was so popular and so well-loved, some of that may have gone to Brendan. They may have associated her with him. Why not? She's his son. And these friendships are really important. In the world of Ice and Fire, they're given credit as a reason why Brendan was seen favorably at court by many early on and give an opportunity for advancement later. So this is really big. His mother really set things up well for him. Unlike Bittersteel's. Bittersteel was probably mad at the wrong people. <laughs> should have been mad at his own family for screwing things up and being so ambitious. But that's not how it went. He's just an envious guy and no way around that. So that famous rivalry, speaking of it, it's fun and compelling, but it doesn't really get going until later. Where these, these guys were kids at this point. And they may not have even interacted much. It's also very well set up, and supported by a variety of factors entirely out of their control, though. For example, would Bloodraven and Bittersteel have hated each other nearly as much if they weren't Bracken and Blackwood? They they probably still would have hated each other, but not nearly as much, and they might have gotten started off on a different foot altogether. Because what two families have a more famous rivalry than those two, really? The actions of their respective ancestors almost made it a sure thing that they'd start off on opposite sides. Dancing on the strings of those that came before them, indeed, majorly. And the stakes had perhaps never been higher between the two families. As you may recall from prior episodes, and as I was just saying about the ambition of the Brackens and Blackwoods, well, really just the Brackens at this time, the Brackens were aiming as high as possible. Barbara Bracken wanted to be queen, and her father was Hand and was pushing for the same thing. Remember that they almost got Agor named heir to the throne, or got close anyway. Which was a miss, didn't happen, but they got close. And, well, they lost all that. Bethany came along later to replace Barba. They worked really hard and to get in the King's Good Graces and to manipulate him. And Brendan was in the middle of all that, and he was really young when this happened. So this is the world he was born into. Very schemy, very unfair, and very cutthroat. And perhaps that had an impact on him early on, right? A lot of other Masters of Whisperers we know of, and to be fair, we don't know many, come from humble origins. Brendan Rivers worked his way up too. But not from humble origins, he was part of a court intrigue from the jump-off and it affected him majorly and directly. He would have only been about two when his mother, who had again who had replaced a bracken, was in turn herself replaced by a bracken, the younger sister of the first. So Melissa went home to Raventree Hall and presumably her three kids all went with, but so this is not entirely sure. But we're gonna work with that assumption. We're gonna operate on that assumption. This is one of those things that there's so many possibilities, we, we can't fully go through all of them. So we'll, we're gonna go with this one because I think it's more interesting. Going back to Raven Tree Hall is fun. And of course, if he did do this, he would have been there for a while. He probably didn't come back to court until he was at least eight to 10, maybe even later. So that would mean, if this is accurate, that most of his earliest upbringing took place at Raven Tree Hall among the Blackwoods and presumably his mother. But there's of course the chance that she died young. Since we don't have direct evidence of how Melissa impacted her son, the next best thing to do is kind of look for similarities between how they behaved. Similarities in personality. Some, some similarities we've covered already, but there are differences as well. She seems to be pleasant and diplomatic. He comes off as kind of harsh and, and as a hardliner, and maybe progressively more so as his career progresses. He also seems sarcastic and prone to quips and insults from what we've seen, whereas that doesn't seem like the kind of thing she would do. But we're not sure. Given that he left King's Landing at such a young age, probably, much of what he knew about the luminaries at court would come from his mother, so she would have explained a lot of these people and given him the rundown on their personalities. So it's important to look at how that exit went down, because the way she left would determine the thought she had on these people. Why go home? It's easy to see the never-ending list of Aegon's mistresses and imagine that he just kept moving on from one to the next, but as terrible as he was, He didn't actually prefer to burn bridges with his lovers. It just happened sometimes because he didn't care. But it wasn't, you know, what he aimed for. He didn't want to not have access to as many women as possible. If it was entirely up to him, he would just keep them all so that he could be with whoever he was in the mood for that day. But despite his rank and status and all the privileges that comes with being king and a prince before that, it wasn't entirely up to him at all. That's not quite how it works. It's easy to confuse the statement, he slept with any woman he wanted, which is about right, with... He continued to sleep with any woman he wanted, which is not, because some of his early relationships did not end by his choice. Other people forced that on him. Here's a summary real quick. Mistress one, father forced him to end it. He kept seeing her anyway. Mistress two, father forced him to end it. He might have continued seeing her anyway, but she was killed, so he couldn't. Mistress three, he was forced to give her up because she was a political hostage. It was said he was bored of her, but still wasn't his call. Mistress four was the Black Pearl, and he supposedly saw her on and off for about ten years. No politics involved in that Black Pearl one, as far as we know. It's a little different. And that's probably why it continued for so long, too, because she wasn't a threat. But here comes Barbara, mistress number five. Again, very ambitious and forced out by a large faction at court, led by Prince Daron and Queen Nerys. Mistress six, Melissa. There we are. And here's the mystery. She was merely set aside for Bethany. Number seven, that's Bethany. She was executed for sleeping with the guard. Number eight died of a pox. And number nine died in childbirth. So you have deaths, scandals, politics... And Melissa Blackwood. So why did she leave? What caused her to leave court? Was she set aside? Isn't sent away? She wasn't shamed that we know of. And Egon would later say that she was the one he loved most of all. So you don't think he would have just get out of here. He wouldn't have kicked her out. Someone else might have, though, or she might have kicked herself out. Let's talk about that. Because the World of Ice and Fire tells us the Blackwood did not suffer as the Brackens did when the King cast off his respective mistresses. The Brackens suffered a lot, so there's a wide gulf of possibility between these two things. But since she didn't do anything wrong that we know of, and because basically everyone seemed to like her, and because she was friends with so many people, why would she leave that? Why would you leave all those friends? Well, it's easy enough to think that Melissa just didn't like it there. She was no longer the king's favorite, she had three children to think of, maybe she didn't really like court despite making so many friends. We already pointed out how her personality type wasn't so typical for an ambitious scheming environment, so it's not hard to see how she didn't like that. It could have just been that. Maybe simple as that. Maybe no mystery at all. But we have to consider that she maybe wanted to stay, and because of all those friends. Or maybe because she thought it would be good opportunities for her children. She wanted her children to marry important people. And being at court is a good way to arrange for all that. And given that Brendan became a fixture at court later, and her connections paved the way for that, well, there's definitely some room to wonder and for a theory or two. Here's a good one. It comes to us from Nina Friel. That's good Queen Alley on Tumblr. I really like this idea, so I'm going to suggest it here. It comes back to the dependable source of anti melissa which is the Brackens, of course. Well, maybe you could just say that they're anti-Blackwood, but either way, their crosshairs would likely be right on her. I, I suspect that they, of anyone, would have made it the most difficult for her to be around. They didn't want any risk. They didn't want anyone other influence around. If their goal was to rule the king through a mistress, which is quite clear, they wouldn't want other mistresses around messing up that game. Right, one of the best ways to become hand of the king in the era of egg on the unworthy was to find him a new mistress. Several of his hands got to that place by bringing him a mistress. Now, as I said, Melissa herself doesn't seem to be the schemer type, but schemer types tr- mistrust everybody. <laughs> they think everyone's scheming. So, and her popularity at court and the fact that the king loved her so much would have very possibly come off as threatening to Bracken ambitions, so they would want her gone. I think this is fairly straightforward, even though it's unconfirmed. If you want to wield power through a mistress, you just can't have this, this other thing around, this other person who's got sway over the king. So other than Melissa herself, what I'm saying is that no one else seems to have had a political or personal reason to have her gone that we know of, except the Brackens, who clearly had both personal and political reasons to want her gone. So it's really hard to go in another direction here, other than the possibility that she just left on her own. The personal reasons probably won't cut it. Like, the, what I mean is that the Brackens can't just be like, King, get rid of her, she's Blackwood. That's not a good argument. But the political reasons, well, let's think about that. If I were the Brackens, I would build my case against Melissa by using Brendan. Think of all the rumors we've just suggested were likely to come from the birth of a royal child with such a look. Talking about curses and famine and plague and war and all that. I know I've said it already, but it bears repeating. It's tough enough in the real world. But in Westeros, again, I think of Tyrion and how he thinks to himself that he'd have been left to die if he was a commoner. Think about Westerosi prejudices and how women are always blamed when the child comes out wrong, even though that's not how genetics works. And men are always getting credit when their sons come out great. It's like the women don't get credit for the good ones and do get the blame for the bad ones. But the thing is, as unfair as it is, that's how a lot of people thought then and in Westeros, then meaning in you know medieval times or what have you, or even a lot now. Heck. But the line of attack, the methods of slander that they could use here, they almost write themselves. It's really straightforward. To the cynically ambitious, just point out the pale skin and the red eyes and the birthmark. It's like a target. Bring up the strange old gods that her family worships, and how Brendan is colored like a werewood. Like, it doesn't look good, King. You don't want this guy around. (laughs) If Aegon doesn't care about that, then they can go a little bit farther with it. They can do what many others do, which is point out that Melissa is clearly cursed to have borne you such a child, or worse, question his parentage. How could that freakish looking child be yours? You could never bear such a child. You're the king. You're a Targaryen. You could never have a kid that looked like that. To be fair, if the king knew for sure someone cheated on him, he'd kill them both. We saw that happen. He demonstrated it very clearly. Bethany was caught with Terence Toyne. But a little suspicion isn't the same. Liter- Aegon literally walked in on Bethany and Terence. So he might not respond to a rumor the same way he responds to <laughs> seeing it <laughs> blatantly right in front of him. And since he loved Melissa, he may not want to believe it. But politically, to avoid embarrassment, you know, maybe that was enough to, to get her out of there. Or at least to embarrass her, to shame her out of there. She didn't like that kind of talk. A lot of possibilities here, but they all kind of point to the same thing. So if Aegon fell for this, or if he just went along with it because it was easier, you know, he's lazy, you know, that, that certainly fits. It would be so ironic, though, if this line worked on him. Because it would mean that he fell for a lie about the parentage of one of his own kids, which he himself tried to do to his own son, <laughs> and no one believed it. <laughs> Whoops. So, it, again... As great a fit as that theory is, is on the Unworthy we're talking about. We don't really need to come up with creative reasons for why someone would want to get the hell away from him. He was charming and handsome, but when he was younger. But by this time, 175, he had started to... become... gross. Well, he was already gross in his behavior before, but I mean physically, just... He couldn't walk, right? He just drank and ate all the time. He was gross. And remember that the Blacken who replaced Melissa, Bethany, couldn't stand to be touched by him. And she was the next mistress. So that means Melissa may have been part of that transition when he went from, well, at least he's not disgusting (laughs) to, oh, he's a terrible person and he's disgusting all at the same time. So that shows the depth of Bracken ambition at this time, by the way. It shows just how far they were willing to go. Her father and older sister forced her to become the king's mistress, even though she couldn't even bear to be touched by him. Nice plan there, Brackens. Didn't think that one through, did you? But this isn't just an aside about poor Bethany. It's to show that. That they do just about anything. How blind they were. How you know ambitious they were. That they just didn't think about much else. They really wanted to get their hooks in the king again. And all this had a big impact on Brendan. Right? Before we move on, though. A caveat. Um, again, I said this at the beginning, but I want to remind you all it was possible. That maybe Melissa left court and Brendan stayed there. Uh, but... He didn't keep any of his other bastards around or make a point of bringing them to court that we know of. So again, that probably didn't happen. The one exception is Damon Blackfire himself, again at this time, Damon Waters. But his mother lived there, so Damon was living with his mother. They all lived with their mothers. That seems to be the pattern. Let's move on. An unworthy visitor. It's entirely possible he never saw his father again after leaving court. Because he may not have come back until Daron... Kept the great bastards close. i guess they met at least one more time. Maybe more. Uh, It was during a visit to see young Agor that, you know, Operation Bethany took place. And given that he visited young Agor, and that he still loved Melissa, and that they had three children together instead of just one, it's possible, maybe likely, that he visited Raven Tree Hall. But again, the issue of his declining health may mean that he was not traveling around much anymore by that time. He may have been completely done with that. So if they did happen, those interactions with his father came during his most impressionable years. And the younger the kid, the harder it is to grasp how a person so good to you can be so terrible to others. This could be a little bit about, like what we talked about with Agor and a little bit with Damon as well, I believe, which is this cognitive distance, great Bastard style. Because all children are deeply affected by their parents, even if that deep impact is a lack of presence at all. Which would be the case for all of Aegon the Unworthy's children, with mistresses, Brynden in particular. And it's further complicated because... While Prince Daron was a man grown when his unworthy father died, his newly legitimized bastard brothers were on the younger side. And like I said, this means they may not have matured enough to grasp how terrible their father was. He probably wondered, right, what they thought. So here's another spot where context and perspective loom really large, because what was everyone thinking about this? And they would have had a lot of different minds on it. He may have had a lot of questions for his mother, and I wonder what she had to say. How did she answer him when he asked, what was my father like? <laughs> but maybe there was no cognitive dissonance at all. Maybe he just saw things for what they were. He was disgusted by what he learned and saw. But maybe, when he heard of his half-brother Damon being knighted and given Blackfire at age 12, he was eager to go to court and prove himself to his father the same way, and to get some of the same rewards, and to advance, and to win glory and claim. But he didn't get that chance. Even if he was at court. But hey, he later got knighted and did get his own Valyrian steel blade. So, you know, he followed in Damon's footsteps in that regard. Just not quite the same way. <laughs> not through his father. But the mention of Damon Blackfire brings up another important point here. Despite being separate from his father's other royal-blooded children early on, he, he surely knew of them. A son being one child of so many and seemingly set aside by their father, that might have driven him a bit, you know, uh, put a chip on his shoulder. And he did end up being skilled at so many different unrelated things. Maybe that was part of his motivation. And in general, his father's legacy was overwhelmingly dominant for all of Westeros. Brendan, on a personal level was probably more influenced by his mother. But these noble houses are often nuclear families, right? Meaning there's often aunts and uncles and cousins around. So good chance young Brendan got his first lessons in fighting there at Raven Tree Hall. And maybe male kin were involved. There had to be some Lord Blackwood at the time, or or Lady Blackwood. And it was probably still Melissa's father, since she was still young. If not, her brother or uncle would be Lord, and whoever it was, had to have some involvement in Brendan's life. And if Brendan felt that any of them were competent and trustworthy enough, some of these guys he grew up with, he may have recruited later when he started to rise at court. Maybe some of them were in the raven's teeth. Maybe some of them were... You know, just his private advisors. A lot of possibilities there. Growing up Blackwood. The people at Raven Tree Hall are interesting. But I really wonder even more what it was like for him growing up with that huge dead fossilized tree and its ravens and worship of the old gods in general, which is something rarely done in the South. Which is yet another thing that made him and his family different. And maybe there was more. Some nights he may have dreamt of black wings and seeing the earth from above. Seeming so real. In Bran's dreams, this is how he will first appear. And I do picture his first skin-changing experience as a raven. But that's just a guess. Who knows? I also picture him having not much control over his powers at all early on, like Bran. Not until later, and quite possibly not until a lot later, does he get a hold of it. Maybe. But we know a lot about skin-changers, and what we do know is that they manifest at a young age. If they have an animal to bond with. At raven Tree Hall, nicknamed Blood Raven. Well, you can see why we're guessing a Raven for his first skin changer experience, but those are just names, right? Brendan's Blood Raven's nickname comes from the look of his birthmark and his heritage, because he's a Blackwood. It's not to some association with birds. They're on the Blackwood sigil, not on his personal sigil. And there's no indication he had dragon dreams, but skin changer dreams. Very likely. I feel very strongly he did. And did anyone else around Raventree Hall have any experience with this? Did they know what to tell him? Did they have insight? Did they have problems with it? What about his mother? Did he mention them to her? What did she think? What did she say? What knowledge in general did she have of his abilities? What did other Blackwoods think of his look and his skills? Tough call. His coloring is too obviously similar to a werewood to not be commented on, especially by people who worship the old gods. No one's going to miss that. And later, he's going to tell Bran something that explains Jojen and explains himself a bit as well.
0: A Dance with Dragons, Bran three. Those you call the children of the forest have eyes as golden as the sun. But once in a great while, one is born amongst them with eyes as red as blood, or green as the moss on a tree in the heart of the forest. By these signs do the gods mark those they have chosen to receive the gift. The chosen ones are not robust, and their quick years upon the earth are few. For every song must have its balance, but once inside the wood they linger long indeed. A thousand years, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees, green seers.
1: Hold on, though. He's talking about the children, not humans. But the same signs clearly exist in certain humans, right? Let's take a quick look. This could also, by the way, be a suggestion or a hint that the children and the first men were crossbreeding back in the day, or did a little bit of that. So Bran is fragile now, as the quote says, but he wasn't born that way. And Brendan isn't robust, but he's certainly not weak, and he's definitely not a quick years guy since he's really old and he was quite active even in his 70s. Jojen though, that's a good example. Bran obviously doesn't have spectral colored eyes like Brendan and Jojen, which is interesting. And it indicates clearly that not everyone has those markings, not all human greenseers. But that's another story because Brendan Rivers clearly does have that marking. So another question is, did anyone else around the Riverlands or Westeros in general know what the red eyes meant. Did they see it the way this quote indicates? It it just seems like it's an aspect of albinism, but in this case it's something more. So you wonder if anyone else knew what that meant. On one hand, this is quite possibly entirely outside the knowledge of normal people, even those in House Blackwood. The Starks don't have any special knowledge of the sort that we know of anyway, so why would the Blackwoods? But on the other hand, the children know. And though Brendan is the last Green Seer at the start of the series, he certainly wasn't back when he was a toddler. Someone was, though. Someone was a greenseer back then. Someone who was now more deeply merged with the trees and a wherewood network. Someone taught Brendan what Brendan is teaching Bran. Whether contact began this early or many years later is unknown. But it happened. I'd be very confident in that. And what about this comparison?
0: A Storm of Swords, Arya four. Her white hair was so long it came almost to the ground. When the wind gusted, it blew about her head in a fine cloud. Her flesh was whiter, the color of milk, and it seemed to Arya that her eyes were red, though it was hard to tell from the bushes.
1: Later descriptions back up the red eyes. The description from George R. Martin himself for Bloodraven when he sent the his description into Amaka the artist is almost exactly the same. Check it out. Brendan Rivers is an albino with milk white skin and white hair, worn long. His eye is red. So that's from So Spake Martin. So milk white skin, long white hair, red eyes. Three very unusual features that they share entirely. And the ghost at High Heart also has this long lifespan in addition to pairing up on all those traits. Though she's not quite as robust, I would say, for those keeping score. We know that she was already old during the time of Egg on the Fifth and Summerhall, so it'd be interesting to know that the ghost of High Heart was alive when Brendan was born. And if she had any thoughts on his birth, she might be someone who knows what the red eyes meant. She might have known exactly what they meant. Arya thinks she's older than old Nan, just to give perspective on how old she is. <laughs> Back then, she was probably less ghost-like. She was just, I don't know, the person at High Heart. <laughs> and either way, did anyone then or later? Note how her coloring matched his. You know, it's one thing for her to to take note of that. But what about other people? Anyone else? I don't know. And I don't mean to imply that there's like a blood connection between the two. I don't mean that they're related. But if you see them both, if you see the Ghost of High Art and you see Brendan Rivers, how can you not just notice that striking similarity in their coloring? But this timeline issue here is a bit multifaceted because we don't know when his connection to the old gods began. We only know for certainty that he used Glamours and perhaps other sorceries during his time prior to going to the Wall. It's entirely possible that he only had a few skin changer dreams and didn't have his full awakening until much, much later. It's kind of more fun to assume that he has some of these powers early, though. (laughs) But again, it makes sense because of, you know, how his abilities played out in real life. Meaning his spy abilities. He was just such a good spy. Using animals to spy would explain an awful lot. But it's not necessary to explain his success, given his other talents, both magical and mundane. Varys doesn't use magic, but he does use extreme methods, right? He has the little birds, which are trained slaves. That's crazy. (laughs) That's not magic, but it's, it's just really out there and extreme. So, you know, we don't have to assume that there's magic in being involved, but we should absolutely not assume there wasn't either. So as a Blackwood, the family if not, Melissa herself might know a thing or two about skin changers, even if they don't know the meaning behind the eye colors and his dreams, right? They they have some ability to understand. They've seen it before. The family has seen this in the past. Though perhaps it's been a long time, but maybe someone would remember some old knowledge there. So I side with the mystical side because it's more interesting, it's more fun. And the ravens gathering at that huge dead tree there really gives me the sense that the old gods still have a presence there. A Particularly skeptical maester, or the light could always muddy the waters, though. Look what Maester Lewin does to talking about magic up at Winterfell. You know, there's clearly magical things happening. And he's just like, nah, nah. So, who knows? But it's not hard to imagine the occasional Blackwood across the years. Also having dreams like this. Soaring high above the ground on black wings, Seeing the world in a way that shouldn't be possible. Like Brendan may have. Again, Veramir comes back. And we want to mention his teacher, Hagon who warns against bonding with birds. So it's definitely kind of hard to say. He warns that flight is addictive, and that a lot of skin changers who bond with a bird just spend a lot of time staring up at the sky. Maybe he's exaggerating though. I don't know that Orel did that. We didn't hear about him doing that. And Brendan Rivers had a lot of willpower. So maybe he was just a stronger type of guy, and that didn't sink him. He didn't get lost in the sky like many bird skin changers do. But anyway, though these years at Raventree Hall were no doubt really important, something happened that changed the course of his life. When he was nine, two pieces of news came. The king, his father, died, which was probably expected, given his ill health. But what was not expected was that Brendan, who bore the bastard name Rivers, had his bastardy removed. The legitimization of his great bastards... On his deathbed, it was something nobody saw coming, I would think. And though it was terrible for the realm, and though Brynden never seemed to exploit it, you know, he didn't do like what Damon did, or what Bittersteel encouraged Damon to do, or anything like that, he nonetheless benefited from it. Newly crowned King Darren II could not rescind his father's decree, as we know, and was not a bloody man capable of killing off his legitimized half-brothers. So he did what he could, which was keep them close. The need to keep Brendan and the others close may have been a big part of why he came to court, which gave him the opportunity to fly high. A raven groan. A lot of big things happened for Brendan between the time he became a young adult and before the Blackfire Rebellion, which broke out when he was around 20. These things in no particular order include the formation of the Raven's Teeth, his acquisition of Dark Sister, the beginning of his work as a spymaster, probably. Maybe that came later, but probably. His relationship with Shiera his developing interest and skill with the Arcane, that was also a maybe, but probably before, and his feuding with Bittersteel. And, of course, if he was at Raven Tree Hall this whole time, he came back to court. That would have been the first of all these. But after that, we can't be sure what order they happened in. We can only be really sure that he rose quickly in both merit and trustworthiness because of all these things that happened. They all indicate trust from Daron II. And he did it at an early age, clearly. Is this Because all this started fairly early in his life, he had to have gained this trust when he was still fairly early in life. And this is important because King Daron II was establishing himself and still surrounded by people he couldn't trust. Aegon the Unworthy left a lot of corrupt lords and officials in entrenched positions, and Daron found himself really needing competent, trustworthy people to replace them, and Brendan... Despite being called Rivers, despite his legitimacy, and if not already called Bloodraven, like, we don't know when that nickname came along. It probably came along pretty soon. And he would be the perfect foil to all this corruption going on around him. Finally, Daron would have at least one guy that he could really trust who had a lot of talent. A white dragon. I love these moments that we come up with where we ask you to imagine something that's happening outside of the story. Here's another spot like that. Imagine the guards at the gates of King's Landing and then again at the Red Keep, the first time Brendan Rivers rode up. (laughs) People are like, whoa, look at that guy. He would get a lot of stares in the city proper, if not for the hood, but the guards would make him show his face most likely. Who are you? What is going on there? And the judging would begin immediately. His skin made him sensitive to the sun. That's a, you know, he wanted to not be sunburned, but walking around hooded makes it look like you're trying to hide something. Many would think he was trying to conceal his appearance. It's a metaphor for his life in a lot of ways, and I want you to think of Melisandre and Euron here. Characters who are seen as far more magical than they actually are, but who are actually quite magical, despite the reputation going beyond the truth. It's based on something real, in other words, their reputation, but... It's just magnified. Many ordinary things like not wanting a sunburn are seen and similarly brown out of proportion like this. And in all three cases, appearance is a big part of this effect. Euron wears an eye patch, while Bloodraven, when he later loses an eye, won't. Still, it's striking. Melisandre and Bloodraven have very similar coloring, too. The red eyes and pale skin. She's not an albino, but she does have that skin. Her hair is red, while his is white, too. But certainly, let's not forget that that may not be what she really looks like. This may be just all glamour. Still, it's interesting that she chose those colors. A major point is is that judging him by his appearance would be a mistake. Yet, no doubt, many did. So, it would be quite surprising to many who misjudged him, who prejudged him, that he would become so well-trusted by King Daron. If not the most trusted by King Daron. This would be cognitive dissonance for a lot of people. (laughs) Here's that word again. This time, it's for the prejudiced. How could that guy be so trusted, they'd say. They still wouldn't be able to get it. They would just assume he cast a spell on Daron. You hear a lot of people talking like that. So in addition to keeping the sun off with his hood, Brynden came up with his sigil at some point. Or someone came up for him, you know. But he probably was wearing it that first time he arrived at King's Landing. Looking at his sigil. Here it is. Uh, It has his coloring, and it very much emphasizes his dragon heritage, which suggests to me that it was designed after he was legitimized. Mm, But who knows? It could have been earlier. The use of a dragon certainly affirms his Targaryen blood, but there's also no obvious nod to his Blackwood heritage, which is interesting. Bittersteel took a bracken horse and gave it dragon qualities, clearly combining his heritage. Bloodraven could be said to be emphasizing his dragon side only, which can be interpreted in a number of ways. Maybe as a statement of loyalty, commitment, as it was... With Bittersteel or Shiera, there's no evidence he ever called himself Targaryen. He's stuck with Brendan Rivers. But you can make the case that House Blackwood is actually represented. Look at the colors. The fact is, Blackwood's house colors are Black Ravens on red with a large white weirwood. That's fairly close to Blood Ravens, Smoke, and Scarlet with a large white dragon. It's kind of like the muted versions of those colors. And House Targaryen's red on black, too. So that nicely works. And how nice for Beth of Blackwood, as an aside. When she married Egg, married into House Targaryen a few decades later, she already had her her dresses and garments would have already been the right color. (laughs) And perhaps um, Bloodraven Sigil was born when he became a squire, which would be typical. Um, And we know he was a squire, or pretty sure he was a squire, because he was knighted eventually, although we don't know when or by whom. we should think about that for a minute. Maybe... Well, it sure would be tragic if Damon Blackfire knighted him. Another level of tragedy to that whole thing. Another possibility is Quentin Ball, Fireball, who who was supposedly trained the great bastards. And uh, they found each other on opposite sides as well. More on that later. So a lot of tragedy implied there. Uh, It's quite possible that the person who knighted him, he ended up fighting against, or even killing. And that brings us to all the other interesting figures at court. Not just Fireball and Damon. There's a lot of others. The next phase of his life would contain quite a few formative relationships with men such as those two, followed by a phase in which he'd have to kill men such as those two.
0: Kept close. The world of ice and fire. He did what he could to keep the great bastards close, treating them honorably and continuing the incomes that the king had bestowed on them.
1: He, in this case, is, of course, King the II, the good. And this... Policy had mixed results, as we know. An interesting side effect of keeping the Great Bastards close was how many other royal children and otherwise important figures were at the court at the time. So they all mingled. This is a big group of people. We've covered this group from a number of perspectives already. I don't want to have to go through it again for y'all. You don't need to hear it again. But I do want to remind you of who these people were very briefly. And remember again that Bloodraven is younger than almost all of them. Obviously there was Damon Blackfyre and Baylor Breakspear, each about five years older, and then Bittersteel about three years older. And remember, these guys didn't have those nicknames yet, necessarily. But just for simplicity's sake, we'll, we'll throw that out there to, to keep it uh, consistent. Uh, Daron's other children will be around, too. That's Ares, future King Aerys I. Makar, future King Makar I. And Rhaegal, so not a king. Two of them would be kings. And the other, well, he lost that Targaryen insanity coin flip. It's probably good that he never wore the crown. None of their ages are known, but they were all born fairly close together Narrowed down enough that they were pretty close to age in Bloodraven, Makar probably being a little bit younger, and definitely the youngest of that group of brothers. Prince Daron's sister Daenerys married Maron Martell when Bloodraven was about 11 or 12, the following year Summerhall was born. A lot of stuff happening. As we alluded to earlier, Quentin Ball, aka Fireball, was an important figure at court. Very important, really. He was Master at arms, trained the great bastards, like I said, He was Kingsguard quality and expected a seat at the Kingsguard, and just a great leader all around. The fact that he sided with the Black Dragon over the Red was a huge deal, especially because he was apparently instrumental in saving Damon from arrest by the Kingsguard. And that was in part because he was never allowed to become one of them. Funny how that worked out. And it's entirely possible that there was fighting during this escape, which meant that he fought against the Kingsguard with Damon uh, as part of their escape. Who knows? And since this is the man that trained Brendan, Fireball that is, it's no surprise that Brendan is good with the sword. A guy who almost got into the Kingsguard? Yeah, no surprise. But because Bloodraven was on the younger end, and consider that training against larger and stronger and faster people, something we hear of, is very valuable and is good sense, well, because it's better to face a superior warrior in training than on the battlefield. If Damon fought Brynden in training, we know who would win. But we also know who would learn more from the experience. When you're Damon Blackfire, it's hard to find a worthy challenge. But if you're Brynden, anytime you fight Damon, whoever you fight next is gonna seem easy by comparison. Because even if you lose to Damon, which you will when you're so much smaller and younger, you're gonna learn a little something, and you're also gonna eventually learn that brains can beat brawn.
0: The Hedge Knight. Dunk stalked away red-faced. He did not have many tricks himself. Feeble or otherwise, he did not want anyone to see him fight until the tourney. The old man always said that the better you knew your foe, the easier it was to best him. Knights, like Sir Stephron had sharp eyes to find a man's weakness at a glance.
1: The TV version of Ned Stark had a similar line to that one. You guys probably remember if you saw it. I think it's episode one. Uh, but it underscores the role of knowing your enemy. That's the point, which is one of the main ways Brains defeats Brawn. Tourneys and training together are kind of the same thing in that concept. In both cases, you get to see how your opponents fight before you would ever fight them for real. Consider that when you consider how it went down for Brendan when it came to war against his half-brothers. He knew how all of them fought. Despite the lost eye, Bloodraven would hold his... against the superior brawn of bittersteel on more than one occasion in real combat and he had the brains to not face damon blackfair (laughs) head-on it's fair to say it doesn't take a genius to come to that conclusion though brendan was on the younger end as we have said a few times in this age group there was also an even younger generation that would do major things later and they likewise would have grown up with brendan as a bit of an influence it was probably a pretty big deal to them and this group includes balor's son prince valar seen in the Hedge Knight novella, and possibly his brother Mataris, uh, make Makar's sons, Princes Daron and Arian, that's Daron the Drunkard and Arian Brightflame. And finally, Sea Star. At this point, too young for romance. Um, until the years just before the First Rebellion, she just won't be old enough. And this section is going to roughly cover Brendan's early teen years to about age 21. Whereas for Shiera, it's more like toddler to early teens. That's the range there. And her birth date isn't known. It's a range of several years, unlike the other great bastards who we have pretty solid dates on. Still, at some point she started turning heads, like all the heads. Thinking of how Sansa is treated when she first shows up to court is probably fairly close or perhaps Elaine showing up at the Eyrie, given the bastardy angle. Still, most of what we have to say about her in Blood Bloodraven, it comes later, as I said. This early on it was just basic stuff. Dudes fighting over a pretty girl. Probably going hard at each other in the training yard. It's like gym class, so this is all like high school stuff. (laughs) Except for the sharing a father part. That wouldn't uh, wouldn't be appropriate for a made-for-TV high school movie. But competition and rivalry, even the non-friendly kind, is to be expected given so many young, noble, and royal kids. Because one thing that's really common amongst such types is pride. And perhaps more interesting than their relationship, is their shared connection over the occult. And I doubt they were delving into ancient books together as children, but they may have discovered a mutual interest in such pursuits early on nonetheless. We have to remember that an interest in books in general, forget arcane books, just books, is something kind of rare in Westeros. I mean, we were just talking about all this high school attitude, right? These guys, all these kids are just fighting with each other. That's mostly what the the, the men are interested in, is just training for war. So that may have been a standout thing. Like, if you got 20 people... And only two or three of them are reading books, and if you're one of those three, you're probably going to notice the other two, and maybe you go hang out with them. Well, that is almost exactly what happened, potentially, with Shiera, Ares, and Bloodraven. And that's something that Bittersteel didn't have in common with them, and it's probably a little bit of why Shiera favored Brendan over him, because they seem to have had more in common. Now, we'll eventually do a C-star episode, as I've said. And when that comes, we'll consider more of these things from her perspective. Their relationship, in particular, is gonna be something we'll cover more on her end. Because there's just so much to cover on Brendan's side, she's a lot more mysterious, but one of the things we do know is this relationship. So for now, though, consider young Brendan, an albino with a large visible birthmark, probably picked on by some of the older, bigger kids who are definitely more athletic and handsome. And here comes this extremely beautiful girl, who's also into books, unlike pretty much everyone else. So. And that's pretty cool it's just a guess but i i'm thinking there's a good chance this is what they bonded over or at least what got them started something that they bonded over if not the thing now it's entirely possible bloodraven was good enough with the sword and bow early on to kind of avoid the bookish label though i still think bittersteel would just call him every name in the well in the book that he probably never read himself ah stannis robert humor there for you Shiera may not have been bookish at an early age either. Perhaps that came in later in life, but probably or Like most people who are into books get there pretty early in life, so I, I don't think that's much of a stretch. But anyway, the, this is part of the fun, these guesses. We're playing around with so many different unknowns. It's like a fantasy history sandbox. We're all playing in together. Check out my fantasy sandcastles here. This is a big one, right? <laughs> the point of a lot of this, besides the Shiera stuff, is to show that his unreasonable Maybe not so unreasonable, but his hatred of the Blackfires, especially Agor, maybe just Agor, may have had something to do with how aggressive he was to the Blackfires later in life, how focused he was on them. It may have been because of his childhood or partly because of his childhood. Now, Damon being the ultimate model of chivalry other than being a rebel and traitor, <clears throat> cough, probably didn't pick on anybody, right? Uh, and since Brendan loved him, probably, then that makes it even less likely that he was picked on by Damon. Damon just probably wasn't a bully to anyone. That's just not likely for his character. But Agor again, so easy to see him tormenting Brendan. Even easier if you can see this piece by Procrick or Procri K. We don't know how to say their name, but the art speaks for itself. It's great. Again, see it on the ACAS Podcast player or check out our website. Now Baylor again, Baylor Brakespeare, also about the same age as Damon, also a particularly chivalrous guy, so probably didn't do much picking on anyone like Damon. So really, if we're thinking of who this candidate for picking on people, really just everything points at Agor, <laughs> since they hated each other, yeah, it just works really well. And of course, Baylor's friendliness may have also helped Brendan get in good with King Darren; it may have paved the way a little bit, even though most of that credit seems to be with his mother, Melissa. Now there's a few others on the positive spectrum here, meaning those who were not likely to be bullies or rivals, but instead likely to be friends. We already mentioned future King the I. He would have been around the same age, and he would later show enormous trust for Brendan, making him hands, and they shared this mutual interest in the arcane. Since King Ares liked to study ancient books and prophecies, kind of like Shiera, you can see why they got together. Just like with Shiera, they may have bonded At a young age over these interests. Especially because of what trust Ares shows in Brynden later, you might think that this trust developed at an early age. It's about as crowded as the Red Keep has ever been with royal-blooded children. The last time there were this many royal kids around was during the time of Viserys I, who had kids and grandkids with two different queens. Well, we know how that went. His death led to the Dance of the Dragons, and look how similar that scenario was to what Brynden was born into. They had factions drawn across family lines between the two queens, the blacks and the greens. Here we had the black dragon and the red dragon, but the family divisions were less clear because there weren't two queens. There was just the one, accompanied by a whole mess of mistresses. This would normally not be such a huge deal since Westeros doesn't think highly of bastards and their inheritances, but Damon Blackfire is pretty special and, of course, legitimized. But Brendan Rivers was legitimized too, and also obviously quite special. Arguably more so, though definitely less popular in Westeros. But more popular in the fandom. (laughs) So out of all these candidates, there's something puzzling here. Out of all these people, many of whom were older, larger, faster, stronger, closer, related to Daron, Somehow, Dark Sister went to Bloodraven. If he had it before the Rebellion, that's huge because it implies an even greater level of trust. How did he earn it over Baylor and Makar, for example? This is perhaps an argument against the idea that he owned it early. Maybe he was given the blade after the war as a reward for being the one to take down Damon. But we don't need to get too far into that. We have a whole episode on Dark Sister. I don't need to repeat anything, or I don't need to repeat much anyway. So check out that episode if you want to go deeper. But in the meantime, there's still a few things that are relevant that we probably didn't bring up, or at least bear, you know, reminding. Because it's no threat, Dark Sister that is, to be seen as like a equal to Blackfire, Meaning it doesn't have that, uh, he who bears the sword is a king kind of feel to it as a symbol. But it definitely has the House Targaryen and Blood of Old Valyria feel and symbolism to it. So gifting Dark Sister to Brynden, it would be a clever way of quelching the rumors that he wasn't the son of Aegon the Unworthy, if such rumors existed, which is totally just a theory. Either way, though, it raised his status considerably and probably pissed off Bittersteel quite a bit, if not other people, too. Maybe Makar was upset about, maybe Baylor. who knows? Other people could have been upset about that as well. Either way, no matter who was upset about it, it was definitively tying him to Daron II. And, and Daron, Daron the Good, as his other name, <laughs> would in turn reap the benefits of investing in such a talented man. Daron was godly, but clearly above some of the common attitudes towards bastards. Or maybe he just took the legitimization really seriously. I personally lean towards Brendan having Dark Sister before the Rebellion because it's clear from other reasons that he was really, really trusted by King Garon even this early. And this next section is going to explain that in more detail. It's going to show that level of trust, because this is an outstanding example of that. The Raven's Teeth The Raven's Teeth share a lot of the traits with their lord, including the uh, mysterious part. Yet, the very fact they exist at all is significant, despite the lack of specific details. The World of Ice and Fire refers to them as his private guards, and as his personal guards. Same difference, I suppose. But there were enough to be considered something larger. We don't know how many there were in the Raven's Teeth, and the number probably could have fluctuated over time. Probably did fluctuate over time as well as how they were equipped and trained and the you know, different ways they were used because they existed for such a long time and Brendan's job and role changed and so they would probably change a bit with him. But the largest figure we've seen for them is 300. Uh, we see that number in the Mystery night. And Dunk recalls seeing him about eight years prior to the Mystery night with about 50, which may not have been all of them though. So we just don't know how many teeth he had. <laughs> 300 is a small army though. That's the point. It's, it's, a, it's a large personal guard. It's 300. It's the same number Tyrion had with him when he got to the Battle of the Green Fork. That's how many clansmen he had. And after the battle, he had about half as many. But he used those as guards at the Red Keep. But of course, he has Lannister money. And they didn't cost him nearly as much. Although he did spend a lot giving them equipment. His, but his father paid for all that. Like I said, it was Lannister money. It wasn't directly from his own pocket. Ned Stark... When he went south for Winterfell to become Hand, brought about 50 men with him. Not exactly a huge number. But to be fair, it was a time of peace. Bloodraven lived during a time when Blackfire assassins were a legitimate threat, and he was personally hated by quite a few people around the realm. Ned Stark wasn't. Ned Stark was only hated by a few people. Maybe more than a few, but Ned Stark was very much liked. Regardless of this number, though, full-time armies, even small armies like this, are rare. Lords have retinues of family and sworn swords, but the vast majority of their armories are on their own and still needed, you know That's the whole idea of calling the banners. They tell your vassals to send their troops aka their levies Which are a lot of these people were just working on the farm around, you know uh, Waiting for the call or maybe hoping to not be called really and this method is slower, but cheaper Armies are expensive even though most of the knights and levies aren't given any equipment. It's just how it is It's always expensive. The raven seas, on the other hand, have it seems to have, anyway. Standardized gear. So maybe the red cloaks are a good comparison. We'll start there. That's a that's the personal guard of House Lannister. They're at King's Landing for Tywin during Aerys's reign and for Cersei while she's queen. Their numbers might be larger, and there'll be some at Casterly Rock and some at King's Landing. But the most we see at any point is 100 with Cersei in Clash of Kings. They're also a bit like the gold cloaks, although the gold cloaks are a lot more numerous. And they're probably... More expensive than the gold cloaks, too, the average equipment. The gold cloaks don't have real gold in their cloaks, otherwise they would be very expensive. But the Raven's Teeth apparently carried weirwood bows. This is an example of something that they may not have had from the beginning. I'm guessing they did, though, because we hear about the white shafts at uh, the red grass field, and if they had werewood arrows, they probably had werewood bows. But, you know, anyway, that's a small point. Either way, the crown pays for the gold cloaks, and lords and lands have taxes to pay for their retinues, So where does Bloodraven get the money for this? We know he was given income by the king, and then Daron continued that. But could it really have been this big? He didn't have like lands or any businesses that we know of to make up the shortage in money here. So the best guess is that the crown was just straight up paying for it. Now even if King Daron wasn't paying for them though, he allowed them to exist. And exist in close proximity to him, which is significant. Especially given how loyal they seem to be to Bloodraven rather than to the crown. This is sort of a guess, but it seems that way. If we were to jump far ahead in our story for a second here, imagine that he's boarding his ship heading for the wall. Well, we're going to envision a large contingent of Raven's teeth going with him. Because they did. That's voluntarily taking the black with their lord. That's very, very serious in terms of how strong a sign it is of their loyalty. So these guys, very loyal to a great bastard, were allowed to be close to the king. They really were trusted. I mean, this is, I can't emphasize this enough. And because it's not just the king, they're around these other members of the royal family, often, and increasingly often, the more we move down the timeline, because Brynden's level of trust and power continues to increase. I really wish we knew how this level of trust was established, because it's so big but without even without knowing it it's clearly there we don't have to know the truth the, the origin of it to see the plain truth of it and it's interesting too because it isn't just Daron's trust carries over to future kings the raven's teeth are around during the reign of king Ares and king makar well of course they are because some of them go to the wall with him after all that's said and done but the question of where these men came from needs to be asked as well he may have recruited from house blackwood lands or the riverlands in general Where do you find men who are going to be loyal to you like that? That makes sense. He's not going to have Targaryen loyalists who are like, yay, let's fight for the Targaryens because there's so many Targaryens. But the Raventree men, I could see them sticking with him because he's the only Blackwood around town, at least around court. So it would make sense for him to recruit from that group. Though there's certainly no proof of it. But another comparison that fits really nicely here is there was a Blackwood named Red Rob Rivers. A.K.A. the Bowman of Raven Tree—that was his nickname. He was the finest archer in the realm for a time during the Dance of the Dragons. I think he died during it, but we're not sure. But his his unit was three hundred archers. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And I mentioned the gold cloaks just now, partly because they're a comparison as a you know the way they're outfitted, the way they're named, all that. But there's more to it than that. Here's here's a, here's a kind of a cool theory I have. All that corruption that happened at the end of Egg on the Unworthy's reign that Daron needed to clean up. Well, it said specifically in the World of Ice and Fire that it was a year or more before the City Watch was cleaned up. It was so bad that it took that long to fix. There was so many people who didn't deserve to be officers, who didn't deserve to be high-ranking. They needed to be gotten rid of, but it took time to figure out who those guys were, and took time to get rid of them and find replacements, all that. A lot of the City Watch's job, the Gold Cloak's job, during the time of King Egg on the 4th, was finding women from brothels for him. Like, what? Can you imagine the the police in your city being employed to find women for your mayor? (laughs) Or for the president or something? How weird would that be? And you can also see how that would just totally corrupt them in their job. So it's easy to imagine that Daron, in that year, when he couldn't trust the Gold Cloaks of which there were perhaps as many as 2,000, that he would look for alternatives. Some other people he could trust, some military organization that wasn't so messed up and corrupt. All he had was seven Kingsguard and some sworn swords, and that might not be enough. Especially because it's not just his own closest people he needs to worry about. Think about other things we've seen the gold cloaks do. <laughs> right? Um, Slent, Alardim, ye nasty folks. I mean, this is killing babies and doing it without question. Uh, Bloodraven is not a villain in my mind. I do think he would never kill an innocent for personal gain. I do think he would kill a child if he thought the greater good was served. I think that's kind of an important distinction to make. Uh, Which is important here as well because he would need men like that in his service. He would need men to be of that same type of attitude or at least willing to obey without question. The dirty work. He would need some people to do his dirty work. Not as dirty as the gold cloaks, not as dirty as killing babies, probably. But, you know, the kind of stuff that, you know, cloak and dagger stuff that is good for the realm, but isn't good for people to know about because it's dishonorable or whatever. Now think about this too. Bloodraven is a man who quickly showed his talents as a spymaster. The loyalty of the gold cloaks is exactly the kind of thing a spy master would keep an eye on. Right? Uh, So it's something he could pitch, right? He could say, hey, Daron, you know you can't trust these guys, right? I'm helping you fix it, but it's going to be a while before we can fix this problem. Why not use my men or why not let me make a private guard and you can count on them? In the meantime, when you can't trust the gold cloaks, you've got them instead. And the whole point of this is whether or not that happened, Brendan gained this trust somehow. And I'm guessing he did it by just being useful, by proving himself over and over. And this is climbing the ladder in a far less cynical, though no less devious than, say, Littlefinger. Devious doesn't mean evil or villainous. It just means sneaky. (laughs) It's just usually uh, bad. Littlefinger engineers problems he can solve in order to be useful. He creates problems and then fixes them. Say, hey, look how great I am. Bloodraven probably doesn't do that. He, meaning engineer problems just to solve them and prove himself useful. But he put himself in a position of power with the raven's teeth. Perhaps by identifying a real problem and solving it, rather than manufacturing a problem. He also didn't seem to leverage this trust or power for personal wealth or other gains, so it seems like the trust was justified. Nor did he ever seem to turn on those who invested that power in him in the first place. At least not that we know of. As we'll see later, he'll certainly be accused of exactly that and more. But before that, again, Daron's trust not only in Bloodraven paid off big, but his decision, which it must have been his decision to allow this, meaning the raven's teeth to exist, his trust in that really came up big too. Good job, Daron. We're at about the halfway point. Time for a few more shout outs. Thanks to Kohol Koe, master of the bow called Sunpiercer. Her kill this time around is people who take one floor on the elevator when they don't need to. Come on now, we have things to do. Also thanks to Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragon bone hilt. Don't mess with her. Thanks to Sir Valentin of House to Jen, creator of the Game of Predictions, a free Game of Thrones predictions slash futures market. Go to gameofpredictions.org for more. Again, it's a lot of fun. It's free. I've used it. Check it out.
2: A special shout out to Queen of Love and Beauty Woodswitch Feverfew from Jarrett and History of Westeros in honor of all the hard work towards your PhD.
1: And to our Ironborn Captain patrons, Kathleen the Ruthless, Captain of the Night Terror, Don't Fall Asleep, Black Mato's Storm Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge, Rebea, Lady of Waves, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat, Tusk Shield, Breaker Captain of Kraken's Fury, Oishan the Wanderer, Captain of Naga's Living Flame, Sir Selvas Redblade of White Harbor, Captain of Trident of the North, Lord Chucklaws, Captain of the Dromon, Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil, Mad Zack, Captain of the Red Wake, Heron Burntbeard, captain of the Smoking Narwhal. John Gregor, captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Caris Farwin, called Seal Speaker, Oracle of Lonely Light, The Eyes and the Waves. Sir Kiron of Lonely Light, Scourge of the Sunset Sea, captain of Naga's Breath, a Droman armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen, Archer Queen, captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Kate, captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just, collector of tolls, captain of the Golden Gift and Captain Jesse of the Beneath the Gold podcast. Check them out. It's a new show, and they could use your support and feedback as they're just getting started and doing some good new things. I've been reading book three of the Stormlight Archive, and I'm eager to start book seven of The Expanse. And sometimes there's just so much to read, it's almost better to sometimes get a few of those books on audio. If that works for you, of course, podcasts work for you, so maybe audiobooks do too. Go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the audible.com link you get two free downloads uh, with that subscription and it doesn't cost anything you can keep those downloads without going on with the trial it might be just what you're looking for enough of all that let's get back to blood raven it's time for war the white shafts fell like rain now we come to the outbreak of the first blackfire rebellion itself we're not going to go through the whole thing again of course that would be really repetitive but there are a few things to highlight from Brynden's perspective. The world of ice and fire. Word soon reached King Daron that Blackfire meant to declare himself within the turn of the moon. We do not know how word came to Daron, though Marion's unfinished The Red Dragon and the Black suggests that another of the great bastards, Brynden Rivers, was involved. The king sent the king's guard to arrest Damon before he could take his plans for treason any further. Damon was forewarned, and with the help of the famously hot-tempered knight Sir Quentin Ball, called Fireball, he was able to escape the Red Keep safely. Surely he wasn't in the room for that conversation and just ran to tell people about it. (laughs) Damon didn't confide this in him, I really don't think so. (laughs) So it implies he heard of it somehow. Maybe proof that he was already spying. For Daron, and perhaps using the Red Keep and or the Red Keep secret passageways to facilitate it. That's something we'll check out more in part two: the Red Keep and the Passageways. His abilities at information gathering may have also been in play early on, as well as his skills with messaging, meaning assuring the realm who the real power was, reminding everybody that Daron's a good king, the real king, and a Targaryen, and that Daemon is a usurper from a rebel dynasty with nothing but a sword. You know. Propaganda, right? Propaganda doesn't have to be lies. It's just what you tell people to get them on your side. It's usually lies, though. But these are not lies. Damon's people did the same, of course, but the opposite. And some of it was lies. So it cuts both ways. It, meaning Blackfire. Yeah, pun intended. You know it. A sword is a powerful symbol in A Song of Ice and Fire, and it's important to remember that swords are for killing only. This is something lost on the modern mind because it's not a part of our life. Nevertheless, for Westeros, this concept reinforces that symbolic potency. The thing is, most weapons are also tools. Swords are terrible at chopping wood, driving stakes, breaking rock, or helping you eat your food, or hunting. That's the province of wider-use items like axes, and spears, and hammers, and knives, and bows. Many knights, though not nearly all, disdain the bow outside of hunting. They consider it cowardly and unchivalrous to kill humans from afar. Budwin was not one of those. Blackfire was surely the most important sword of the war. But arrows killed more of the war's key figures than Damon's blade. A near miss and a direct hit. War was so nearly prevented entirely. But what fun would that have been? We're glad we got this war, because it's not real. We We can be happy fake wars existed. But Fireball apparently foiled the attempt to capture Damon before he could launch his rebellion, before he could crown himself. He then proceeded to become a key commander in the war, as important as any, say perhaps, Damon himself, even more so than Bittersteel at this early stage. Although it's said that both had an equal share in convincing Damon to crown himself. But while Fireball led the Black Dragon's armies to many victories, he was not around for the decisive battle. The Mystery Knight. Did Sir Quentin die upon the Redgrass field? Before, sir, Egg replied, an archer put an arrow through his throat as he dismounted by a stream to have a drink. Just some common man. No one knows who. Those common men can be dangerous when they get it in their heads to start slaying lords and heroes. But this story is highly suspicious, and Dunk immediately explains in part why it's so, though there's several reasons why. It's true that common men in a setting like this are often so conditioned to obey their superiors that killing them is a bit unthinkable even when they're enemies clearly enemies not only is it a social status thing but they also know that the highborn are better trained and equipped sometimes it's just well it's sometimes it's well sandor clegane for
0: example jamie 3 a feast for crows jamie looked him over bolder than the rest but not as drunk as shitmouth you were afraid of him i wouldn't say afraid my lord i'd say we was leaving him for our betters Someone like sir, or you.
1: But it goes beyond that, right? How can Egg know it was a common man if no one knows who he was? Those statements contradict each other. How do you know he's common if he's unknown? Anyway, it's not mentioned, but I assume he was with his army. But if not, it's even weirder. Why was Fireball off by himself with the redgrass field so close with this epic battle only a few days or a week or so away? We don't know exactly how soon before the battle it came, but we were told it's pretty close before. Maybe he was out scouting, that would make sense. But we're still left with the sense that if he was out scouting, someone might have been watching, waiting for an opportunity like this. I also just can't think of any story like it. A key commander picked off by an arrow while traveling with an army. Wait, we have kind of heard this before. Instead of an arrow though, it was a shadow taking out Renly. Bloodraven doesn't necessarily have his reputation for dabbling in sorcery yet, this is too early but he will later be accused of guiding his arrows with sorcery at the redgrass field. My point being that maybe this common archer who killed Fireball was not so common after all. Many of you already know that Bloodraven is seen in disguise as a hedge knight in the mystery knight novella, so maybe this common man wasn't so common after all. Maybe he was only disguised as a common man. That's quite a shot this common man pulled off. Not that common man can't make amazing shots. Nothing's stopping him. So this death on the eve of battle by a no one knows who figure could very much be Bloodraven or or one of his men, a Raven's tooth, one of the molars or incisors. <laughs> no, no, no. A counter argument though, beyond the fact that what I've said is isn't conclusive, is that why would he conceal it? Why would he conceal doing that? Fireball is an enemy, so why not take credit for it? It's not like this is Damon where he's going to be called a kinslayer, and he didn't shirk from that either. So, I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't want to take credit. Maybe he doesn't care. It's, it's not really something we see from him. He's not a guy that's like, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm a badass. Praise me. He doesn't seem to have this need for glory. So he just maybe he just doesn't care. But there's another argument against one of Bloodraven's men or Bloodraven doing it. And, and that is, again, this argument of Weirwood Arrows at the Redgrass Field. This case of Quentin Ball's death on the eve of battle no mention of a special arrow. Of course, if there had been a special arrow, the, the people would already be thinking like this. They would already be questioning if it was Bloodraven or one of his men. So maybe he just used normal arrows. But then we're back to wondering why he would need to hide that it was him. So anyway, I'd say I'd lean towards Bloodraven being involved, but I admit it's, it's nowhere near a sure thing. Whoever did the deed, it was a big deal though. And I suppose you could say that was just a warm-up for what to come. Fireball was an energetic and aggressive leader, and that description of character is exactly the kind of commander you could see keeping Damon from making the critical mistake he ended up making on the redgrass field. Which was honorable, but still a mistake. He paused to help the defeated Gwen Corbray, who he had just broken his helm with Blackfire, and wanted to make sure Corbray was tended to. In that moment, in that delay, we're told that Bloodraven was able to gain a key position on the battlefield, which in turn enabled him to rain arrows down on Damon Blackfire and his sons. The Weeping Ridge. The shots Brendan and his men took were really quite long, apparently like 300 yards, which is a tough thing to aim for. Some people say this argues for magic, but if you have 300 archers all shooting at a spot, you don't really need magic. Sheer numbers alone are going to cover it. Some of those arrows are going to hit. Which begs the question, by the way, how do we know that It was Bloodraven's arrows, specifically, that killed Daemon, Aegon, and Aemon. Well, we don't, but he gets the credit for it, and the blame for it. And don't be fooled by the distance, really. 300 yards is long, but it's not out of the question, not even close. 300 yards is doable for a real-world medieval longbow in the hands of a trained archer. And, of course, these men were very trained, and they maybe had an edge because they were firing downwards, which should give them a little more distance raised position. Still, it's long. So we're here again with a case of what's magical, what's mundane. What's aided by sorcery? What's just outstanding skill and or sheer numbers of arrows? There are other questions I have too. Did Bloodraven know that the Weeping Ridge would be perfect based on his skills as an archer? Did he scout the location ahead of time? Did he see it from above? Nothing gives you the ability to scope out terrain like a pair of wings and the sharp eyes of a raven. Nothing like a normal human has access to, anyway. And this could be how Fireball was seen drinking from that stream, if we're looking for magical ideas beyond a sorcery-aided arrow. But a spy within Fireball's army could do a similar job helping signal his presence to some nearby archer, just as Bloodraven could simply have noted the advantage a certain piece of terrain could give, without using Raven's eyes. Merely just his own two human eyes. If this is the case, though, it's near to the last time he would look at anything with two eyes. Shortly after this, he's faced with a very, very angry Bittersteel. And Bittersteel is always angry, so this is really something. He had to see him coming. But while he and his men picked off Damon and his sons from 300 yards, Bittersteel was inexorable, and arrows clearly did not stop him. And Brendan did not flee, though. Again, we're not sure if Brendan had Dark Sister here, but Bittersteel definitely had Blackfire. And with it, he took out Brendan's eye. Given such a wound, I wonder if he was able to drive off Bittersteel, or whether the raven's teeth did it for him. Or perhaps the tide of battle simply swept them apart for some other reason. They would face each other again, dueling face to face 23 years later. But they would duel in between as well, though not face to face. Damon Blackfire was dead, so quickly in historical terms, relatively speaking. But the Game of Thrones, as played by Bittersteel and Bloodraven, was just beginning. It would take a long time to play out. Spies, politics, allies. And a lot of hate. That hate, that enmity, is oddly dependable though. Many had doubted Blood Raven's loyalty, probably not Daron, but many others. But now, at least in terms of the Blackfires, he had sealed their minds with blood, theirs and his own. One of the things that Daron and Ares and Makar, the three kings he worked under, and a lot of other people as well, in lesser positions, they knew for sure that he would never, ever not hate and be hated in return by House Blackfire. You would always know where he stood in the case of them. Maybe. I mean, maybe he could favor one Targaryen prince over another. Maybe he could, you know, play with court politics in a way he shouldn't, or in a ways that some people would think he shouldn't. Shouldn't is a loaded term there. The point is maybe he would try to interfere with the line of succession. We don't have any evidence that he had ever did, but maybe he would. And there's plenty of rumor of that, but nothing to back it. Still, it's similar to how Ned and Robert didn't really trust Tywin, but since Tywin's men killed the children of Rhaegar and Elia, they knew that Tywin would never ally with the Targaryen. If Tywin ever turned on them, it wouldn't be for a Targaryen. So they they know that much. That they can bank on. Likewise, Bloodraven killed the children of Daemon Blackfyre and Rohan of Tyrosh, and Bittersteel took his eye. While trying to overthrow his lawful half-brother, the king. So it's an interesting bit to consider in terms of alliances and loyalty, and it's exactly what people mean when they use that old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So that cuts both ways, though, doesn't it? Tywin made a lot of powerful enemies, and so did Bloodraven. Both were rather harsh with their enemies, too. They have a lot in common, as I said at the beginning, and here's a great spot for it, since we're really getting down to it. Plenty of key but subtle differences, too, mind you. Tywin spent much of his early years as Hand of the King, and the Hand must rely on the Master of Whispers for much of his information, right? Which means he has to trust that person to a certain degree. And for most of Tywin's tenure, well, that person was Varys. And he never fully trusted Varys. You know, why would you? And he warned Tyrion to not trust Varys fully when he named Tyrion Acting Hand. Brendan Rivers didn't become hand until a lot later, the year 209, we're not there yet. But when he did, he didn't have this problem. He didn't have to rely on someone like a Varys, because he was the Varys. Except without the qualms of magic and, you know, with all his parts. Well, minus the eye. But he has a penchant for magic, not just an affinity for it. It's very much the opposite of Varys in that case. Varys has his little birds, but Bloodraven has. A thousand eyes and one. One of the many early amazing scenes in the Game of Thrones is John and Tyrion's interactions. Their conversations illuminate something that becomes a theme throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, among other things. But, but what I'm trying to draw your attention to is that there's a lot of cases where characters find ways to at least partly turn their weaknesses into strengths. And this is one of the first conversations we get along those lines. Tyrion telling John, don't get upset every time someone calls you a bastard, because people are just going to use it against you. They're going to see that that's your weakness, and they will exploit that weakness. This is the kind of wisdom that most people lack, yet when you hear it, it becomes obvious. It's like, oh yeah, well, that's a good point. But it's also easier said than done. John, being as stubborn as he is, doesn't take that to heart right away. Cough, Alistair Thorne. <clears throat> but he does eventually take it to heart. He has to mature a bit first. I wonder how this went for Brendan, though. That's the point of me bringing up John, is to see what it went like for him. It's an important question to ask because both of Tyrion and John's weaknesses that become strengths are present in Bloodraven. Jon Snow, Brendan Rivers, that says it all, right? The bastard part. Westeros is not nice to bastards. Even after saving Lord Commander Mormont, John won acclaim, but some people were still not a fan. Bloodraven arguably saved the king, but still, his bastard he comes first, even though he's legitimized. People call him bastard his whole life, and he was legitimized when he was nine. <laughs> So Tyrion and Brendan, for them, the comparison is how they look. People looking down on them for their appearance. John is a bastard, but he's good looking. Tyrion's look inspires talk of curses, but he's a Lannister. Brendan is both cursed, quote unquote, air quotes, and a bastard. People who hate him have no shortage of things to name. Here's an example. Just a quick sentence with all of it piled in. The Mystery Knight. I do not drink to kinslayers, said Sir Glendon. Lord Bloodraven is a sorcerer and a bastard. And to make the parallel to Tyrion even closer, they both lose a part of their face in a decisive battle that had a color in it and a train feature. (laughs) Blackwater Bay and the Redgrass Field, a nose and an eye. Tyrion takes the advice he gives Jon and uses his missing nose and huge scar along with his other unusual features, especially his different colored eyes. And he intimidates people. Remember how he stares at people? Yeah. The Mystery Knight His hair fell to his shoulders, long and white and straight, brushed forward so as to conceal his missing eye, the one that Bittersteel had plucked from him on the red grass field. The eye that remained was very red. How many eyes has Bloodraven? A thousand eyes, and one. So that's Bloodraven. You can see the same kind of similarities there. Uh, They're not the same kind of features, but they're similarly intimidating. The striking and terrifying appearance part. it's, It's a straightforward parallel. But there's more, and deeper parallels to describe here. It's really cool. He was, of course, like Tyrion, on the winning side following this major battle. And also like Tyrion, it was a fairly new in his time rising at court. He had already been doing things at court, but this is a time when he really starts to ascend. Partly because he's now the man that killed Daemon Blackfire and his two eldest sons. This made him, you know, pretty popular and trusted by people like Daron, but... Outside of that, you don't see a lot of people thanking him for it. The, the curse of Damon Blackfire was that his charisma was so powerful in life that even his enemies liked him. As we saw with that quote earlier in the episode, Bloodraven himself may have been one of those charmed enemies. He did his duty to the realm, and while it didn't ruin him or anything, it didn't gain him any fans. It inspired fear and loathing in Westeros. Instead of being labeled a hero, he was dubbed a Kinslayer. There have been so many episodes where we pointed out just how severe the Kinslayer taboo is. So this was arguably worse than losing his eye. And on top of that, people still call him Bastard and other things. Instead of being a man who killed the greatest warrior anyone living had ever seen, something that could easily be viewed as a great feat, he gained little prowess because it was done from afar. Though Damon was a traitor, he was brave and noble and great, and many would say he deserved a better death. Even though Damon was a rebel, he was loved. So even though it was the right thing to do, there was a huge social price to pay. It just doesn't seem fair, does it? But I don't think Brendan hesitated. I think he was totally willing to pay that price. It's a theme that we're going to keep coming back to, which is the theme of, you know, self-sacrifice for the realm, which is partly why we compare him to Varys. Um, I I wonder what went through his mind, though, you know, on a personal level. He was clearly determined and effective, and he didn't seem to hesitate. But was he troubled by it? I don't mean the hits to his reputation. I don't mean troubled by what people said about him. I just mean internally. If he loved Damon Blackfire, it might have been very hard to kill him. And he may have very much suffered for it afterwards. Again, if he's suffering from the loss of his eye, this would be a double whammy. The real pain, the loss of an eye, it's a really important thing. While lying there in bed with nothing to think about but how you killed your own brother? I don't know. It it might have happened. It's easy to see. Or not, though. He was a hardliner throughout his career, and maybe he just is able to put all the blame on his half-brother, even with the love. Some people are just really good at compartmentalizing such things and putting duty over love. But think of the character who introduced that concept to us fairly early in A Game of Thrones, Maester Aemon. Incidentally, someone whom Bloodraven will have a lot of contact with later in life. Aemon explains to Jon that love is death to duty, and vice versa, basically. The two can't really exist. Still, he suffers for his choice, even though he's certain it was correct. But he didn't kill his own, and he didn't kill his own family members, and he still feels this guilt. So hardliner or no, duty or no, it's a rare individual who can suffer no emotional consequences whatsoever for killing a loved one, no matter how justified. Heck, people in the real life Feel trauma from killing bad people, people who were like out to get them. You know, it's it's hard to take someone's life. In Westeros, this is less of a problem because it's such a normal thing. But still, this is someone that he grew up with, his half brother. This is George R. R. Martin reminding us that doing the right thing isn't cheap. It's not easy. On the surface, Blood Raven seems to have handled it all well enough, but and maybe he didn't care about acclaimer being popular, but still, internally it might have torn him apart a bit. And later, as his life progresses further and when you see how much of a hardliner he is to the Blackfires, and how focusing on them so much became a source of controversy for him and how going too far with one of them ended his career, well, it makes me wonder if there wasn't some resentment from him against the Blackfires and against the people that made him feel that what he was doing was wrong. Like, hey, I'm serving the realm. I'm protecting you guys. And you just want to hate me for it? Again, sounds a lot like Tyrion, right? So it's an interesting and worthy consideration, but maybe he just really understood the situation better than anyone. People say he focused too much on the Blackfires, but what do they know about weighing these risks? He was the man on the front lines. We all know the concept of the person out there in the world on social media or the dinner table or at work, just people who value their own opinion as much as they've, you know, expert opinions. Like my you regular old opinion, This is as good as this expert opinion. People do that all the time, and it's it's crazy and silly. It happens a lot. People not in the know, talking down to those who are in the know. Brendan Rivers had a talent for being in the know, so maybe when people are saying he was going too far, maybe they're just speaking from ignorance. His talent for being in the know is not to be despised, because his talent for being in the know was both a natural talent and an unnatural talent. This is really important. Tyrion missed out on a whole lot while he was recovering from his wounds after the Battle of Blackwater, and it terrified him. People who wanted him dead were out there plotting while he's lying there. While Brendan may not have been as laid up, uh, a time in bed recovering is still not unlikely. We have two portrayals of that by Winry Arts here, uh, also known as Iliadoodles. Good stuff here. Just as things moved on without Tyrion, Bloodraven was probably slowed by his wound. It's possible his wounding actually was crucial at the end of the battle there. Bittersteel was able to gather the rest of Damon's sons and flee the continent. Bloodraven would have seemed like one of the perfect guys to chase after him and pursue him and know where he was going and, and catch some of those rebel remnants. But he may have been out of action. In fact, he's probably out of action. We should not exaggerate the human body's ability to recover from a lost eye, though. It's, it's not, maybe not as bad as it seems. I read up on it, and from what I could tell, most people recover quite well, including depth perception and all that. Uh, Although, farsight gets a little more difficult. But it does take time, even if you recover. Anywhere from a month to a full year. And emotional suffering is common, as I said, although we don't see any direct sign of that in him. It's a lot to wrestle with, in any case. The pain of maybe killing his brother, and the loss of his eye, the loss of some of his abilities. Anyway, that aside, over time, the Lost Eye would help define him. We don't know when the song A Thousand Eyes and One came along, but it wasn't A Thousand Eyes and Two, so it surely came after the red grass field. The song itself is a reference to his abilities as a spy master, as much as it is about his missing eye, and it refers to how fear he is, and it's a reference to things people whisper about him. But they can't whisper softly enough, can they? Because the very nature of their fear, which inspires the need to whisper, is the very thing they're whispering about. They fear his seemingly unnatural ability to hear and otherwise detect secrets. Again, similar to Varus, and people believe that Varus is magical because his knowledge seems to defy natural explanation. We know that's not the case because he hates magic. But with Bloodraven, it's not so clear. Varus also says he has no cell swords or rich family to help him. (laughs) Also no magic. Bloodraven has all those things. Varus doesn't even have a song. <laughs> Songs can be great for one's reputation when one's reputation is boosted by being sinister. Or when that is, you know, the sum of their reputation, or at least the part that people point to the most. And if it's a good song, it'll spread by the virtue of being a good song, and thus so will your reputation. So, hmm... Conspiracy theory time, maybe he commissioned the song himself, knowing all that. Knowing the effect it would have, knowing that it would spread, and knowing that it would increase his reputation. This is a guy who understands information and how it flows. He would know this.
2: Uh, at
1: one point in the Mystery Night, Egg says, I remembered this one time I heard my father talking about something Lord Bloodraven said, about how it was better to be frightening than frightened. So this basic concept we're seeing here as he's playing it up. Tyrion stares at people with his mismatched eyes because he sees how it unnerves them. And if you crawl early in the episode, we quoted Dunk having a very similar feeling when Bloodraven stares back at him. Even the memory of it makes Dunk shiver. That's really something. Especially, as we're told, he didn't wear an eye patch. Maybe he looked a little bit like this. Here's another one from Lady Ray on Tumblr, also known as I am a lady, damn it. Odin Bloodraven. A question that returns over and over with Brendan Rivers is his use of magic. We've already brought it up several times here, but here we're going to focus on it for a minute. Both his old god's powers and his delving into sources of sorcery. Say that ten times fast. We hardly know how any of it works, but we can infer that Bloodraven himself, and some of those close to him, knew quite a lot. We're forced to guess, which is nothing new. I said at the beginning of the episode we have to do a good bit of that. There's just so many whens and wheres and hows... But it's fun, even though it's confusing and difficult, it's still a lot of fun to play with. So instead of trying to nail it down from a timeline perspective, I want to look at it a different way and maybe think in terms of literary symbolism and things like that. A different perspective. So with that in mind, and given the very common association of giving an eye up for knowledge, an association as old as the Norse god Odin, whose name is on this section. Well, why not Blood Raven's loss of an eye as a major driver in his move towards learning the higher mysteries, meaning sorcery, glamours, such like that. There's a lot of reasons it works. Let's go through it. And, for, and in terms of his connections to the old gods, I still prefer the idea that he had skin changer dreams younger than this. So I want to make sure that the distinction is clear. This is his other types of magic. Although it could absolutely push him deeper into the old gods and thinking about the old gods. Maybe he had dreams while he was uh, recovering from his eye. R- wound. Lost. <laughs> so... The idea is supported by Bran's experience. Remember Bran's trauma? That's when he was visited by the three-eyed crow. And guided and advised and all that. So if Brendan also had kind of a long, painful sleep like this, maybe he was visited by someone. Someone who was waiting for an opportunity to get into his dreams but couldn't do it. Now they had the chance. Maybe a crow of his own. A four-eyed crow. (laughs) Six-eyed crow. Or another animal entirely. Maybe just a weirwood face in his dreams. Lots of ravens. A thousand of them. Well, five hundred. <laughs> thousand eyes is five hundred ravens, right? So paradoxically, an extended sleep could bring an awakening. <laughs> that's kind of what we're looking at here, because that's what happened with Bran. Now as for are studying the occult, let's get back to that. During his recovery, I mean, after he's out of bed, he can't shoot a bow, at least for a while, and, you know, because the depth perception thing, and maybe he's thinking that he won't ever be able to shoot one again, he's not sure. Maybe he's not going to be as good as fighting. To be clear, he is good at fighting later. He fights Bittersteel again and probably beats him. But in any case, for this idea to work, for this injury, for this recovery time to be kind of an impetus for him to look, dig deeper into some of these other interests like magic, for this to work, we asked to have Shira and Ares have to still be kind of young because otherwise they would have been doing this by now without him. But they were still on the younger side, so the ages fit. So that's good. They may have all, like I said, have this interest in an early age. So, but interest and opportunities are different, different things. Uh, For example, perhaps he could learn about the old gods at Raven Tree Hall, maybe. But I don't think he could have studied arcane books living there. At court, however, that's another story altogether. He could get books sent to him by the Citadel. He could say, hey... Archmaesters, send me these books. If he had done that while he was living at Raven Tree Hall, I mean, not only was he really young then, they probably wouldn't listen to him, but he just had less clout. The point is, he's now a major figure. If he wasn't big enough, he certainly is now. And we'll have a lot more to say about the magic, as I've said, all throughout this series. And mostly it would be a developing situation at this point, I think. And Shira and Prince Ares, they're all doing this stuff around this time. It would just make a lot of sense if this happened around now. But on the other hand, it may not have gotten going more until later because King Darren himself, he was a really pious guy and I don't think he would look too kindly on people digging into the, what he would probably consider the Black Arts. As a worshiper of the Seven, a very devout follower of the Seven. This wouldn't be cool. So I could see how we're told that this really kicked off during Ares's reign. It might have been seriously... Dampened while Daron was still alive. We'll get back to that when Ares actually takes the throne. So something I have to point out here, though, that's really important that some of you might be wondering about, and you're all gonna wonder about it as soon as I bring it up, which is... Isn't this supposed to be the era? When magic is really weak or gone? There's no dragons now, right? Well, that's always been a bit of a misunderstood topic. Not only did the Others and characters like Melisandre and the Three-Eyed Crow exist before Danny's dragons were hatched, All of this that we're dealing with right now is 80 to 100 years prior, and we know for sure, even though we dance around the issue of was this magic, was it not, we definitely have at least one or two confirmed instances of Brendan using magic. So, it's important to remember that magic wasn't gone then, it was just weaker. But it's kind of funny to see this time of weak magic being the time when we see the most interest from the Targaryen dynasty in it. At least that we know of, right? Maybe there was more earlier times, it just isn't mentioned. Still, though, a good example of all this is the dreams. Again, I said earlier, I don't think Bloodraven had dragon dreams, but Daron the Drunkard, son of Makar, certainly did. And he's the first we hear of to have dragon dreams during the era after the dragons died. And his uncle King Ares, again, Brendan's good friend, confidant guy there, is the first one we hear of to mention the prophecy of the dragon's returning, which he read in a book. A book, as we were just talking about. This is according to Egg. Blood ravens associated with, with King Ares, and thus, these prophecies really need to be considered alongside blood ravens' later association with Maester Aemon, because they take the black at the same time and all that, and of course, they would have had plenty of opportunity to talk about these prophecies. And of course, Maester Eamon himself eventually corresponds with Rhaegar about the prince that was promised and all these other things like the Comet. Meaning the Comet during Rhaegar's life, not the Comet in A Game of Thrones. So Eamon very possibly got a lot of what he knew about these things he was talking about Rhaegar with from Bloodraven, or at least partly from Bloodraven. So that means he in turn, because Bloodraven got a lot of it from Aerys and Shiera Star, that means Eamon indirectly may have gotten it from them as well, if not directly. So take that in for a moment. That's This is really huge. The web of connection between these prophecies and theories goes back really far. Characters like Maester Aemon and Daenerys and Melisandre are highly concerned with huge things like Azor Ahai, Azor Ahai, however you want to say it, <laughs> the prince that was promised, the return of the dragons and the oncoming darkness. And Bloodraven still lives, even now, fighting that same ancient darkness. And this is why I lean towards thinking that he's basically a good guy, even though he does a lot of things I don't agree with. Also, this early interest that he shared with Aeris and Shiera is probably the spark that led to the uncovering of all these central mysteries. I don't know if that was clear from what I've all just said, but I want to make sure that is clear by saying so now. So over a hundred years before the start of the series, we have these characters who are digging in these ancient books. And this is where we end up. All these connected central ice and fire threads begin right there. Not all of them, but a lot of them. A huge number of them. As George R. R. Martin does so well, Tied up in this sweeping, central, supernatural arc are smaller stories of human nature. Not only do we have this situation of these pivotal early life friendships, but we have Bloodraven's desire for his sisterly partner in the arcane. Spy master General. I like this term because it describes some of his skills in a unique way. We've never seen a spymaster or master of whispers lead troops that I can recall or have found any reference for. And Bloodraven ends up doing it many times. Don't let that title fool you, though. Mostly, I just think it sounds cool. No one called him that. I made it up. <laughs> he wasn't really a general. That title doesn't even exist in Westeros, and it's unclear when he started spying for the crown, as I said before, or what his official title was. Because much later, the term Master of Whispers is applied to him, but it's unclear if he actually held that title under Daron. and if he did, when did it start? It's not super important because he was work- whether he's working as a spy master as that title Master of Whispers or if he has the title or not. It doesn't really matter. The job he's doing is what matters, not the title. Another important facet of all this to consider is that spying is not only not a young person's game, it's also not really a game for the nobility. They kind of look down on it. Think of the people who I listed earlier as holding the job, and only one of them was noble, apart from Bloodraven, and he's a bastard. And the other noble was also crippled. The job just doesn't seem to be something for honorable people from great families. It's just not how they operate. Nobles look at it as something for bastards, eunuchs, the lowborn, and women. For them, that's second class. So basically the opposite of how they look at commanding armies. A common perception among men in Westeros is that only noble-born men should lead armies. So of all those names we listed, like I said, only one of them was among the nobility, and he had that deformity. And he only had lands because his father and brother died. Lady Mazaria was a dancer and sex worker from Lys. Tiana was a bastard daughter of a Pentashi Magister and also a dancer and sex worker. Varus's background is mysterious, but he clearly worked his way up from like the streets or something, if, he's, if his story is even remotely true. Bloodrave is not lowborn, but he was bastard born. And he leads troops, the aforementioned Raven's teeth, early on in his career them plus larger bodies of troops later. No other Master Whispers have been seen doing this, like I said, in part because of everything we just said about how leaders of troops and leaders of informers tend to be very opposite types. Especially when you're looking through the eyes of the so-called honorable people in power. This is just yet another way his combination of skills and heritage makes him extremely unique. No one else could pull this off. Meanwhile, Varus has many times pointed out that you know, he has no swords or guards or skilled arms himself or lands or a title, just his little birds and his courtesy title of Lord. Bloodraven can fight, can fight well, even after the loss of his eye. And he has fights yet to come at this point. He's going to still prove himself formidable later, you know, and he'll do this at the height of his power, which is kind of interesting. He consistently seems to be close to the front lines. And I don't just mean battle, Though he's pretty close to the front lines in battle, too, that we see. But I mean... Going undercover in the Mystery Night, for example. Right in the midst of his most bitter enemies, he's just right there, first-hand. So, that's that's brave. And it means that he maybe values seeing things firsthand himself rather than getting it second-hand. He knows, as any Master of Whispers should, that second-hand information is always not quite the real story. And if third-hand, fourth- and fifth-hand information is even less that. Bottom line, the Blackfyre's... Were quiet for a long time, and Bloodraven is quite possibly the biggest reason why. Because his hard line of reputation, combined with people's great fear of his abilities, well, it seems to have been very effective. He will be accused of unfairness, but that's often how people respond to severe punishments. People who deserved punishments. <laughs> we hear of him punishing people harshly, but we don't hear of him punishing people who don't deserve it at all. And that's a big difference, right? One's just a difference of scale, the other is just completely unjust. So he seems to be on the good side of that. The Second Blackfire Rebellion barely counts, but Bloodraven was all over it. I mean, he was completely unfooled and ready for it. So it was the year 219, 23 years after the First Rebellion, when the Blackfires came back in force with Bittersteel and Blackfyre itself. Before then, this sentiment held by Sir Eustace Osgray. Seems to tell the story of how Brendan had the realm in hand.
0: The Sworn Sword All the men who march beside me to seat Prince Daemon on the Iron Throne Have melted away like morning dew Mayhaps i dreamed them Or more like Lord Bloodraven and his raven teeth Have put the fear in them They cannot all be dead Bloodraven
1: continued to rise in esteem and in responsibility at court, it seems, but not so much among the people and many of the lords. As we've said many times, this is unfair and undeserved, but if our goal is to be fair, his hardliner qualities are also not always fair themselves, nor ideal. He seems to have played it up, but people were legitimately afraid of him. It wasn't just his reputation only. He deserved a lot of it. Like Tyrion in *A Clash of Kings, he was a scapegoat for so much that was not his doing, or even anyone's doing. This surely happened off and on for, for Brynden as well as the years went by. His spy network grew and probably became more efficient over time. He may have incorporated more and more of the arcane in his spying, or at least wanted people to believe that he did, because that would increase his reputation and terrify them even more of being rebels or traitors or anything like that. And the Targaryen family kept growing just as his reputation did. Aemon, aka Maester Aemon, and Aegon, aka Egg, were born to Deanna Dane, giving Makar four sons. This all pretty shortly after the Blackfire Rebellion. Egg's future bride, Betha Blackwood, aka Black Betha, also born around the same time, around the year 201. And this is something that Brendan would surely be very aware of as a member of that house, being a Blackwood. He would know about Betha's birth, probably. I don't know that he had anything to do with, you know, having those two meet or anything, but you never know; it's possible. But it was the year two oh nine where things really turned. This was the pivotal year, and it was a reversal. Literal forces of nature, thus out of anyone's control, saw a huge increase in superstitious mistrust aimed at Brendan, while those same forces of nature actually pushed him to new heights of power by killing off a large portion of his family, and of course he's going to get blamed for it, even though. These are forces of nature. The death of dragons. No, not the book at the Citadel, but the year 209, and not literal dragons. They had been extinct for a while, as you know. This is just a really bad year for Targaryens. Pretty bad year for the realm in general. Somewhat early in the year is when the Hedge Knight takes place, and this saw the death of Prince Baylor Breakspear, Hand to the king, and heir to the throne. Not just a huge blow to House Targaryen, but to the realm, because he was a special combination of talent and virtue and people respected him, people loved him, etc. So that's, that's really tragic. But King Darren the Good was in decent enough health, despite being in his mid-50s, and Baelor's heir, Prince Valar, was, no, not as outstanding as his father, nevertheless seen as a solid and capable all-around replacement. He'd be fine, it seemed like. It appears the realm could handle Baelor's loss, even though it was painful. Valar appears to have been named Hand in his father's place, but he only held the title for a matter of months because the Great Spring Sickness came later in the year 209 and it was nasty. Not only did it claim Valar, but his younger brother Mataris, perhaps worst of all, King Daron himself. If you're suspicious of Bloodraven, here's a point you should focus on, as many in Westeros with similar suspicions surely did. Remember how big I said the royal family was? Is pretty big, right? A lot of different figures. Yet no one else in the royal family died. Only those ones. None, at least none mentioned, but definitely none of the big names. So, let's add that all up. Aerys and his wife lived. Regal and his wife and kids lived. Maegar's wife had already passed, but his four kids lived. Shiera lived. So, only Targaryens in the direct line of succession died. No one else. Only the ones in front of Ares I, Blood Raven's arcane study buddy, who would then become king and name Bloodraven Hand. Hmm. It's a bit much to say Bloodraven caused a plague, right? Like, I'm not suggesting that. That's the crazy accusation. But that's not the actual accusation, is it? People who want to accuse him would say the sickness gave him a cover story for murder. Right? Like, oh, he died to the Great Spring Sickness. We didn't have anything to do with it. You might even be able to keep people away from the corpses to verify the means of death. They're like, don't go near that body, you know, Brendan later would have to burn bodies at King's Landing, which is one of the things we'll talk about at the beginning of episode two. But the point is, there's a lot of opportunity to not only conceal the means of death, but just so many people were dying, it was just so chaotic. So to make it worse though, at some point earlier in time, Valar's sons with Kiera of Tyrosh had died, stillborn. And Bloodraven was blamed for that as well, of course, because, you know, he's blamed for everything. So by the time of the Great Spring Sickness, there were already a lot of dead Targaryens being laid at his feet. Even though he probably bears zero blame for any of them. Despite my conspiracy theory, I don't believe my conspiracy theory, I just think it's possible and worth considering. But look at how the accusation against Bloodraven and Valar and his sons is worded. Look at this. Shadow came at his command to strangle brave Valar's sons in their mother's womb. Okay, it's difficult to credit this, especially as the speaker is a crazy septum, kind of like the equivalent of a street preacher telling everyone they're going to hell for, I don't know, wearing blended fabrics. But it's interesting to consider nonetheless. Shira is, is not a red priest, but maybe she learned some of that magic of shadow babies like Melisandre did, with Brynden being the Stannis here. It's... Plied Melisandre couldn't do this, though, until the strengthened magic, so I would guess no. But it's striking to see that same language used. A shadow, right? That's something. So more likely to me is this is just about location. The ones who died were probably all at court, and, and King's Landing was said to be hit as bad as anywhere else in terms of the Great Spring Sickness. The other Targaryens were just not in a plague-filled city. They were more isolated in places like Dragonstone and Summerhall, or in Arian Brightflame's case, he was exiled to Lease. He was far, far away from the Great Spring Cygnus. But again, Ares is the one who kicked off all this prophecy talk, and prophecies have a weird way of getting people to do strange things paired with the fact that he became king and that Bloodraven became his hand and that just the exact right number of Targaryens and none other died, despite my assertions that the locations of these people make sense, from people on the outside, it's going to look a certain way. And those people with conspiracy theories, there's so much fodder here, especially as it relates to prophecies. We need look no further than Rhaegar and his seemingly strange justification for hooking up with Liana. and remembering that people who believe in prophecy are capable of bold and surprising things, and that puts it mildly. Bloodraven seems to be a means-justify-the-ends kind of guy, a point we'll define even more later because a lot of that classification comes when he's Hand of the King. But for now, we'll just say that killing some of his own family to save the realm, maybe not likely, but it's not something we can put past him either. And he was blamed for it either way, <laughs> whether he did it. Just like he was for the plague and several other things to come. He's just blamed for everything. Almost any time something goes wrong. Especially if it can't be explained. And double especially if it's tragic. Just blame it on the weird looking guy with the reputation for magic and subterfuge and all that. It fits, right? That's so blood raven. Outro. This was a particularly hard one, but it was also a lot of fun to nail down as best as we could. I hope it was fun for you as well. If so, you've got to be excited that we're only about a third of the way through this Bloodraven coverage. We're now up to the point where he's handed the king and mostly in charge of everything, as Ares is not so interested in ruling or his wife, but he is really interested in magical books, which is a pretty cool topic by itself there'll be more shiera, a mysterious magical grand maester thrown in the mix, the sworn sword, the mystery knight, spy games with bitter steel, a whole lot more dead targaryens, the third blackfire rebellion, the peak rebellion, uh, also known as the peak uprising, the great council 233 and Brynden sailing off to the north, and that's just part two. Valar yuris. Thanks to George R. R. Martin for such a rich and incredibly epic character. Ashea, of course, did all of our production in the background there. She did the recording, and she's doing all the video editing, and she did all the contact with all the artists, and set all that up, picked out which art to use. Really awesome. Speaking of the art, thanks to all the artists whose work we used in this episode, we've got that posted in various places, especially in our website, but all visible on YouTube primarily, as well as the Acast podcast player, which is the Free app you can get from any app store uh, for listening to podcasts. It's the one I use myself. Thanks to Martin Lewis for all the voices. He is known as the reader, and he he does voices for several other podcasts. Check him out at Echoes of Ice and Fire on Facebook. Huge thanks to Rainy Targaryen, who is always helpful with corrections and timeline stuff, in particular. And always helps me feel like I didn't miss anything and that I didn't make any mistakes because, of course, with all this, I'm bound to make a few mistakes. It's good to have someone to catch them. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse all for the intro and outro music, respectively. If there's ever anything you need to know about History of Westeros, the answer, very good chance, it's on the website. Go to historyofwesteros.com. Almost everything you can find there, including links to episodes. Uh, links to our bios, links to our sponsors, links to Patreon, all that stuff. So check that out if you are curious or have questions. Also, some thanks to our Facebook administrators. You guys are helping out with the group a lot, keeping the discussions going. A lot of fun stuff happening there. Now time for our role of heroes. The mysterious BR is Hand of the King. Lady Suzanne Sinistral is the learned holder of the left-handed Valyrian Shears called Penance Hand of the Beard. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog is Warden of the West and host of the Two-Wage War podcast. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones of the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, Led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Damon. He was recently accused of being the descendant of those who rescued Bittersteel on his way to the Wall. It is believed that the accuser is agents of Charlotte Oster, Corsair Queen of the Western Shivering Sea, commander of the Briny Fleet, whose flagship is the barnacle-encrusted, violet-hulled mercenaria. She carries the nacre-inlaid shucking-blade crass-lover, and apparently has a talent for propaganda, if it's indeed propaganda. Our small council is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs, is Master of Coin, Lord Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, is Master of Ships, Lady Dyril is of Castle Naki, is the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains in Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort, Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter of the Hawke's Eye is Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hellcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Vachette Everglades. Lord Alistair Whittaker, Lord of the Dawn Order. Lord Demi Snugglebunny, Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Weirwood Dual-Wielding Glorious Morning and Little Light Lives. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch. Strength and courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is first forester of the Old Gods. Sworn to House Ironwarewood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Hall. Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring. Navessa the twin a suspected skin changer, is holder of Castle Parahel. Our King's Justice is Sir Char the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate.
2: Lady Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe Painkiller, Mistress of Sea Eagles and Mistress of Ships. Lady Mai Emerald Eyes, voice of House Swan, Mistress of Whispers. Elia of Upstate, Master of Coin. Grand Maester M. Elizabeth, middle daughter of Lyanna Mormont, First Lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. And Bold Betha of House Copperhook, Steel Waters Run Deep, Master of logs, Lord Captain Commander Hema Helment, The Sellsword Sentinel, Who recently saved someone in real life. Lady Nymeria of House Sea Pirtle, Alexander of House Atreides, From the Seat of Doom, I must not fear, Fear is the mind killing. Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North, Sir Eric Redbeard Odinson, Wielder of Tempest, A monstrous Warhammer. Michonne the Melodious, Star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters, Ser Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Our
1: King's Guard is led by the Smiling Wolf, Lord Commander Stephen Stark, Cartographer of Kings, who earned a white cloak through wisdom and learning as much as skill at arms. Our Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by Sir Joshua Oakheart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Copper Main, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Sir Jeff Warden of the AC, wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum, red and brown, stay frosty. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and the awesome maps you see behind me. His website is claradox.com. That's K L A R A D O X.com.